0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminals. As always, I'm your host, Simon Wyman, here. One of my writers, David, has written me a script that I've never read before. And we, dear audience, are going to explore it together. Chopper, Australia's most lovable torturer-murderer. <laughs> okay, let's see if I love this guy at the end. He's a torturer. He tortures people to death. Who's that famous philosopher? I want to say it's like, you know, one of those lies like Socrates or Aristotle or the other big one. <laughs> Begins with a P. Um, Plato, It's Plato. Thank you. Who's there? I need to go with a P. And they said, uh, and there's that thing that you know about um, worries or whatever. And Plato or whoever it was is always like, "Oh, don't worry. It could always be worse. You could always be being tortured to death." <laughs> It's like, yeah, you could. But the problem is then, if you actually do find yourself in a situation where you're being tortured to death, that's not really any help, is it? Because you're being tortured to death. It's like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And how am I supposed to find this guy lovable, David? Anyway, David, I feel like it's been a while. while. Since you wrote me a script. I think you wrote me that absolutely massive one, which hasn't come out yet, because it's several hours. (laughs) it takes it takes me a long time to record and then it takes an even longer time to edit thank you jen who edits these you're wonderful um anyway this one's a relatively brief 24 pages (laughs) david they're always so long which is fine which is fine let's go In 1992, René Brack, a journalist for 60 Minutes Australia, paid a visit to Mark Chopper Reed. He was holed up on the island of Tasmania, which, prior to the Port Arthur massacre of 1996, had Australia's most relaxed gun, lo- gun laws. Chopper felt he needed guns, and a lot of them, because of the 25 contracts out on his life by various gangsters on the Australian mainland. What, Australia? <laughs> What's going on? There's so many gangsters... 25 contracts on his life? How many people is this guy upset? Oh, is he torturing gangsters? Is he torturing gangsters to death? Bad idea. That could be okay. Like if there was a guy and his entire job was just torturing Pedro Lopez to death, I'd be like, yeah, I love that guy. He's my hero. I'll send, if he's got a Patreon, I'll send him money. He'll be like, what, what, what's the Patreon rewards? I'll shout your name while torturing Pedro Lopez. I'll be like, how much do you want, Mark? Particularly in his homeland of Melbourne. (laughs) David's given me a pronunciation guide for Melbourne. And I'm like, David, do I really need that? And the answer is yes. Because the Australians were all up in arms when I was calling it Melbourne. Which is how it's bloody spelt. Like, if you had an episode on Edinburgh, I'd be like, yes, fine. (laughs) Because that's how it's spelt. Like, it's Edinburgh. Are you joking? Like, is it Pittsburgh? But it's spelt like Pittsburgh, right? It's not spelt like Pittsburgh. Wait. Edinburgh and Pittsburgh are spelt similarly, except Edinburgh is pronounced Edinburgh, which makes no sense, and it should be Melbourne, Australia's. But we'll go with Melbourne because... oh, Because I don't know why. Because it's correct, I guess. To quote Chopper, there's two serious ones. The rest are all jokes. Don't worry about them. The contracts that the Italians put on me are just good for a giggle. A criminal with contracts out on him was nothing new, but Chopper was not a former mafioso or a biker who had fallen afoul of his old bosses. The reason why so many people wanted to kill him was that he was a solo operator who preyed on other criminals. His modus operandi was kidnapping heroin dealers, prominent gangsters, and other human detritus, and torturing them until they gave up whatever money they'd stashed away. Dude, that is a great way to get yourself killed. Like, don't go after people who can also kill you. That's... That's, that's, like, gotta be one of the rules. If that's not in the casual criminalist rules already, it bloody well should be. Like, there's lots of people who have lots of money who are not dangerous criminals. Rob them instead. Why rob the criminals? You're gonna go to prison anyway. It doesn't matter. Then the courts aren't gonna be like, well, yeah, but you actually just robbed the criminals, aren't you? You're like a Robin Hood, so we'll let you off. Obviously, it should work like that, but it doesn't. It shouldn't work like that. I was just joking. But just rob people. I mean, (laughs) you're robbing. Just robbed this. Why are you taking so many risks, Chopper? Chopper's favorite method of persuasion was using a blowtorch to scorch and blacken the toes of people's feet until they fell off. Other times, Chopper cut off their toes using bolt cutters. Quote, I always thought that the removal of toes with a bolt cutter was rather humane. As I said to a mate of mine, Linus Patrick Driscoll, who was head of a group called the Toe Cutters in the late 1960s and early 1970s, I thought that cutting people's toes off with a bolt cutter was was rather poofy. I thought it was rather effeminate. I like a blowtorch, you know, the smell of burning flesh in the air. Bro, he doesn't sound lovable. And I know that these guys are criminals and heroin dealers and stuff, but dude, you're blowtorching people's toes. David, it's going to take a lot to make me love this guy. After making this comment, Chopper merrily chuckled and guffawed, showing that half his front teeth on the right side were completely missing. Chopper is two, or 188 centimeters, and 310 pounds, or 140 kilograms. Oh my god, this guy's not that much taller than me, and he weighs twice as much as I do. He's a monster. He utterly towered over his interviewer. Six foot twos I'm like just shy of six foot. So is does he just two inches, does that tower over me? I don't think so. Oh, over his interviewer, who was maybe a dwarf. <laughs> René Brack, (laughs) a short and rather willowy woman who stood there looking nervous. Chopper's hair was short and his face was clean-shaven, except for the biker's horseshoe moustache that was his signature. His torso was riddled with prison tattoos, various swirls and stars on his belly, the name Margaret running vertically down the center of his chest, surrounded by a few love hearts and the word kamikaze and bushido written down the length of his right forearm, the Japanese for divine wind and way of the warrior. Mad Dog Psychopath was also written on the center of his back. And a bizarre tramp stamp with the folk song lyrics, I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I've got my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Bro, that is the longest tramp stamp I've ever heard. And I don't know if I've ever seen a dude with a tramp stamp, my dude. What are you up to? Amid the tattoos were also scars one is an abdomen from getting stabbed with a butcher's knife. Bro, a scar from an ice pick straight through his heart, and another. This guy is a fictional character. Oh my god, and another on his upper left shoulder near his neck, a bullet wound on his right rib cage, and eight scars sustained from gouges by Stanley utility knives on his chest, arms, and back. This guy's like a real life Jack Reacher, and most notably, his ears were missing, having been sawn off years earlier by a fellow prison inmate at Chopper's own request. What the f*** is going on, Chopper? Where are your ears and why did you want them removed, Chopper? The only reason you should want your ears removed is if they're covered in cancer, Chopper. And then you go to a hospital, like a prison infirmary, and they'll chop your ears off and they'll give you some fake plastic ears. So is ear cancer a thing? (laughs) I hope I don't get ear cancer. I have to have my ears removed. It would look really bad on me. I'm fully bald. Like... I couldn't even hide it. I'd have to wear a wig. And people would be like, is that a wig? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I have to wear a wig because I don't have any ears. don't know why we went down that route. During the interview, Chopper was flirty, cheerful, and took great delight in making the female journalist uncomfortable with off-color jokes. Oh, I hate people who do this. It's like, some people, I don't know why people do this, but it's like, you just be in conversation with someone and they'll just be like slightly inappropriate, like just with their humor and stuff. And it's just like, you know it's inappropriate. Or like, you know, just like, I don't know. I'm thinking of one specific person that I know. <laughs> so he's like, why aren't you like this, man? <laughs> At one point, with a semi-automatic rifle resting on his shoulder, Chopper presented to take offence when Brack asked him about his ears. "Quote: you're getting a bit personal there, aren't you? If I shot you in the kneecap, Rene, we're entering Logie territory, which is a reference to an Australian TV award. Oh, okay, so he's like, if I shot you in the knees, you'd get out of ward. <laughs> It reminds me of that amazing scene. Have I told this before? I, I maybe you guys haven't have seen the show, but Boston Legalist, this incredible show with William Shatner. And he plays this lawyer and he goes into court <laughs> and he's like on some like rich lawyer case or whatever. And the judge is like, Yeah, 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 you have to do some like community service or pro bono or whatever it's called. So we're gonna assign you like a, a client and he goes and meets the client and he's like, I can't represent this guy because he's a piece of shit. and the judge is like, Well, too bad, you have to represent him. <laughs> so he's in this meeting with this guy and he's saying all this horrible horrible and so uh denny crane the lawyer just takes out his gun and shoots the guy in both knees (laughs) and then the 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 security guard comes in or whatever into the interview room like where he's talking to his lawyer and the guy's just like oh my god he came at me (laughs) he's just like and then he gets taken off the case because he shot his client but no one's ever going to believe him i'm sorry we're rife with tangents then we have like 23 more pages to get through we're going to be here forever sorry let's carry on After saying this, Chopper leaned in and laughed loudly in her face, then Chopper treated Rene to a demonstration of his marksmanship, ordering a a gangly youth named Trent to stand several yards away with a bottle dangling from his hand, which Chopper blew to smithereens, showering the young man with glass shards. If someone asked me to hold that bottle while I shoot it, I'd be like, uh, look, Chopper, you're a scary dude. But you know what's more scary? You with a gun pointed near my body. So hard pass, Choppo. Not a sociopath at all. Then Chopper pulls out a black service ruler and spun the cylinder several times in order to play an impromptu game of Russian roulette. He announced to the camera, Ladies and gentlemen, there is a slug in this gun. you got to take my word for it, but there is a slug in this gun. Wow. I want one shot to my head. Chopper then pointed the gun right where his right ear was supposed to be, and without hesitation, he pulled the trigger. His facial expression did not change. Chopper then pulled back the gun's hammer and said, And one shot to Renee's. Are you ready, Renee?" I don't think I want to play, the journalist replied, a fake smile plastered to her face. Chopper asked again, Are you ready? Before the woman's words finally registered with him, and he said sadly, You don't want to play? Then Chopper simply mattered, bad luck, before pointing the gun at Rene Brack's face and pulling the trigger. I'm sorry, but even if that doesn't go off, that is a crime right there. Believe that's called assault. The gun clicked. Chopper immediately started cackling like a maniac. It was a torrent of laughter deep from within his belly, as if he'd just heard the funniest joke in the world. Chopper, you are a fucking psycho. You are a cartoon villain of psychoness. And also, how have you lived this log? Let me interrupt today's episode to tell you about today's fantastic sponsor, Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and it can help you lower your bills all in one place. Look, over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, and chances are you're one of them. Yes, yeah, an 80% chance you're one of them, which does seem low to me. Like, I've definitely got subscriptions. Like, stuff that comes out of my bank account, I'm, like, I'm not really sure what that is. Well, good news, Rocket Money is going to help you out with that. They'll quickly and easily find your subscriptions for you. And if you don't want to pay any- anymore, you just hit cancel and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. And that is so much easier than, I don't know, I've canceled subscriptions in the past where it's like, I'll click here and then write to customer support and they'll write you back saying that that they need a phone call. And it's like, I just want to cancel it. Help! Well, Rocket Money makes it much easier. They also help you manage all of your finances in one place and automatically categorize your expenses so you can easily track your budget in real time and also get alerted if anything looks off. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Stop throwing your money away! Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com casual. That's rocketmoney.com casual, rocketmoney.com casual. And now back to today's episode. Meet Mark Brandon Reed. Mark Brandon Reed was born on November 17, 1954, in Melbourne, Australia. His mother, Valerie Westlake, was from Brisbane, the daughter of a British Seventh-day Adventist preacher. She spent much of her childhood in New Zealand and Norfolk Island, where her father hopped from parish to parish. In the early 1950s, Valerie left her family and moved to Melbourne, where she was a high, where she was highly active in church circles and in search of a husband. Mark's father, Keith Reed, was from Goulburn, a small town in the interior of New South Wales, about three hours' drive from Sydney. Sydney. Keith was also mostly of British descent, but had a Chinese great grandmother who had moved to Australia in the 19th century with a family of itinerant workers. This makes Chopper 1 Chinese, which is interesting given that when running with bikers or speaking to the media, Chopper occasionally had unkind words for people of that ethnicity. I mean, Fair, fine. But you can also be racist against an ethnicity that you are a part of. That's not unheard of. And he's only one-sixteenth Chinese. His father, Keith, joined the Australian Army in 1939, fought in the Second World War, achieving the rank of corporal, and stayed in the Army after 1945 to become a professional soldier. It's like, yeah, I love the Second World War so much. <laughs> decided to sign up for life. Maybe there'll be another World War. <sighs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> in the early 1950s, while Keith was stationed in Melbourne, he saw Valerie Westlake play piano at an army social night and was smitten. They fell into a courtship. Keith converted from Anglicism to Adventism, and they married in December 1953. Mark Reed was born 11 months later. I'm always surprised when it's like Christians. There's so many like there's little denominations and all that shit. It's like, does it really matter? Don't you all believe in like the same God and the same Jesus? isn't it just about like slight differences in the way that you like oh well we don't believe in gifts or like we do this or we like having like tons of golden dripping all all over our bodies like the pope or whatever um does it matter is it really (laughs) you converted from one type of christianity to another okay Corporal Keith Reed was frequently on duty, leaving Valerie to manage on her own. Shortly after Mark's birth, Valerie fell pregnant again with his sister Deborah. Chopper later claimed that his mother couldn't cope with looking after a newborn baby while being pregnant with another, so she placed him in the Methodist Babies Home in Melbourne for the first eighteen months of his life. I feel like you know the first eighteen months, the kid's never going to remember that, but that's that's not good. That's not going to be good for, like, the bonding. According to Chopper, it was his father, upon his return from active service, was outraged and brought him home again. His mother, Valerie, always denied that she'd ever dumped her newborn son in a home usually reserved for orphans and victims of neglect and child abuse. It's unclear whose account is true. Valerie, there's no paperwork. (laughs) It's it's an orphanage or whatever. Surely there's paperwork. When was this? The 50s? Maybe not. I don't know past was weird. Valeria would later do things that were similar, but on the other hand, Chopper would fabricate numerous stories about his past in the many autobiographical books that he wrote, and would freely admit to doing so. Quote, once you pick up a pen and paper, you can take people on a journey anywhere. The trouble is, they come back later and say, is that true? And I say, who gives a sh—? Yeah, Chopper Reed has got it down. He's like, I've mentioned this before, especially on the channel Decoding the Unknown. If you want to write something. And have it sell better, just frame it as a just frame it as a true story. It's like the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Needless to say, we here at The Casual Criminalist shall endeavor to give a true and accurate account of Chopper's life. It might well be the only one you can find online. For instance, on Wikipedia, it says that Chopper spent the first five years of his life in a children's home. That's not true. What? In inaccuracy on Wikipedia! Outrageous! Although isn't there some statistic that Wikipedia is, um statistically, to repeat the word there? Uh, as accurate as Britannica, like it has a similar number of errors, which I also can't believe because there's like tons of stuff on Wikipedia, like tons of articles, which are just kind of like barely referenceable. And stuff. In 1956, when Mark was two years old, Valerie and Keith Reed fell out of love and became somewhat hostile towards each other, but nevertheless remained married. They spent a great deal of time apart. In 1960, Valerie took the children to Brisbane to look after her dying mother, while Keith remained in Melbourne. Valerie and the kids returned to Melbourne the following year. Keith stayed at the barracks during the week and only returned home on the weekends in order to minimize his time with his wife. Meanwhile, growing up, Mark was subjected to his mother's rather harsh and rigid religious upbringing, which was rough for a kid later diagnosed with hyperactivity. Yeah. Yeah, man like <laughs> being like chapel and- I, i'm not not diagnosed with hyperactivity or, or anything but i like want to be doing stuff like all the time like i don't have that um adhd or whatever but it's like sitting still and doing nothing i'm like let's go let's go let's go let's go let's go let's go let's do something and sitting in church as a kid you're like oh or chapel as we call it my parents never took me to like church or anything like I went to religious school. We had chapel like twice a week. And it was just like, and let us pray. And you're just like, off oh, for f*** sake, we're just sitting here in silence. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Let's go. Let's go do something. Let's go. I want to I wanna throw some... When Mark disobeyed, which was often, his father Keith would hear of it on the weekends and thrash his son with a belt. Ah, the past, everybody. Mark would then be locked in the bathroom for the night as punishment, where he slept on a pile of towels on the floor. Valerie made her family observe the Sabbath on Saturday, as per Adventist doctrine, and so Mark was not able to participate in team sports like football or cricket as a kid. (laughs) That was my home. I'd be like, Oh no, no going outside and playing sports? What a shame, I'm crushed. That was sarcasm. I didn't like sports. I don't really like sports." Mark later claimed to have been sexually abused as an adult at age five or six, but this story appears to be false. In mid-1967, when Mark was 12, 12, his father retired from the army to run a retirement village. Because Keith was now home full-time, Mark's beatings increased in frequency. By that point, Mark started lashing out with anger and violence of his own. He became fascinated with true crime, along with a budding interest in guns and knives. At school, Mark was relentlessly bullied as bullied as been, quote, on the losing end of several fights. Mark became something of a delinquent, prone to fits of rage, theft, and underage alcohol use, and was expelled from every school he attended. When Mark was 14, the holier-than-thou Valerie Reed took her son to a psychiatrist and demanded that her son be committed to a mental institution. The psychiatrist, a fellow Seventh-day Adventist, complied. Mark's father, Keith, reportedly objected. Honestly, it does sound like he needs help, though, doesn't it? But Valerie clearly ruled the household. Mark was put on heavy sedatives and was locked up at Royal Park Asylum among the violent and delirious adult mental patients. Whoa, you're in the mental institution with the adults why aren't you in the child mental institution according to chopper he was subjected to electroshock therapy every three days and while the frequency of the treatment may have been exaggerated mark's claim that he was repeatedly subjected to electroshock therapy at age 14 is accurate one day mark claims he entered the bathroom to find the body of an old italian man who had used a razor blade to slash every major artery in his body coating the floor with blood is that possible but well, i don't think you can slash every major artery in your body This is definitely from one of his like semi-fictional autobiographies, isn't it? Like, oh, he's just like, just like going on to work at himself like a surgeon, dude. One is enough. Mark was distressed at the mess and immediately began mopping it up. He was released from Raw Park Asylum after six months. In March 1970, when Mark was 15, he began school at Hollingsworth College in Melbourne, one of the last schools that would take him. On his very first day, he met a young man named Bernie, three years a senior, who was on the verge of graduating. Mark asked Bernie for his phone number, and that night Mark kept him on the phone for hours, ranting and raving about his interests. <laughs> Can you imagine being that Bernie dude, be like, oh, for fuck's sake? Oh, there's a guy who's supposed to talk to me for ages! Shh! What have I done? Why did I give him my phone number? And this is the 60s. It's going to be expensive. Do you remember back in the day where there was like, if you, oh, I guess maybe that was just for long distance. But if you phoned someone, it wasn't just you who was paying. It was also you'd get a bill as well. <laughs> it's like, what the? F- <laughs> During the course of the conversation, Bernie mentioned how he had a crush on a rich girl at school, but that she'd rejected him and called him a peasant. <laughs> Bernie, peasant, you disgust me. That night, Mark phoned Bernie again and they spoke for another hour. The following morning, on Mark's third day at Hollingsworth, Mark walked up to the rich girl and insulted his new friends and said that he didn't like her attitude. Then Mark struck the girl in the face with a backhand blow that had such force it sent her flying and knocked her out. Mark's getting expelled again. No wonder he gets expelled from every school he went to. And when I said he needed to go to the mental institution, I was right! Chopper would later joke that this was the first fight it would ever won. A mere three days at Hollingsworth and Mark was expelled, having exhausted Melbourne's supply of schools. <laughs> Jesus. Mark's father got him an apprenticeship as a mortician at a funeral home. Mark claims that he stole the jewellery and gold teeth from the dearly departed and stored beer in the refrigeration units on top of the corpses. He was promptly fired after a few weeks. Mark's next job was at a fur- as a furniture removal person when he- where he lasted a few months before being fired. His next job was as a railroad road laborer, but he was fired after only a few days after punching a co-worker in the face. All of this happened in 1970, while Mark was still 15. After the railroad job, Valerie Ree- Reed prevailed on the Adventist shrink again to have a son committed, this time to Laurendel Mental Asylum. There Mark was incorrectly diagnosed with bipolar disorder and pumped full of lithium. But this time, an enraged Keith Reed defied his wife and rescued his son from the asylum after only five days. Rescued him from the asylum? That's where he belongs, David! He clearly is a problem! He ne- So he doesn't have bipolar disorder. He has something. And he needs to be on some pills. <laughs> the Surrey Road Gang In early 1971, 16 year old Mark Reed had an enormous growth spurt in both height and weight. His biceps approached 18 inches or 45 centimeters in circumference. Good lord! He now dwarfed other boys his age. Accordingly, Keith Reed got Mark a job working as a bouncer at May West Gay Nightclub in the rough Melbourne suburb of Pran. In his leisure hours, Mark would wrestle and box at the tri Boys Youth Club, from which he was soon banned. Dude, if you got banned from a boxing club... <laughs> what are you doing i mean i guess it's quite easy because you just break the rules but can you imagine this guy to fight and he's just like he's just you know he's doing what the the sweet science like and then he just kicks your ass in the kidneys or in the balls and it's like mark no (laughs) get out mark In May 1971, Mark was arrested after breaking into the Maywest nightclub to steal booze and money. As a juvenile first offender, somehow this is his first offence. Mark was going to receive probation, but Valerie Reed wrote to the judge informing him that Mark was not allowed to return home. So instead, Mark became a ward of the state and was sent to Tirana Boys Home. Mark later claimed that while staying there, he got into fights with members of staff after being sexually abused by them and saved other boys from a similar fate. After five months at Tirana, Valerie Reed finally allowed her son to return. Home. Mark later claimed that around this time he formed the notorious Surrey Road Gang. The gang's leadership included other delinquents named Johnny Cowboy Harris, Dave the Jew Epstein. (laughs) Okay, what what's your nickname? Well, I'm just the Jew. (laughs) Terry the Tank Tempest. The gang soon widened to include roughly two dozen other young men cowardice was punished by being forced to eat a pack of cigarettes one at a time after each one was lit by the torturer oh my lord disloyalty was punished by getting shot in the kneecap how much there's only three of you it's like ah oh, well the jew guy his mouth is burned to shin he's got terrible infections and the tank guy he can't walk anymore The Surrey Road Gang purportedly engaged in petty crimes, street brawling, and random acts of mayhem. Once, Mark and Johnny Cowboy Harris were stealing a woman's panties from a clothesline when she opened fire on them with a .22 revolver. Mark was struck in the buttocks as they ran away. Johnny allegedly dug out the bullet with a knife, while Mark lay howling on the kitchen table. On another occasion, the Surrey Road gang allegedly got into a street ball with an opposing gang from a nearby suburb of Richmond. According to Cooper, during the fight, Johnny the cowboy got stabbed through the neck with a broken bottle, bled out, and died. Because Johnny had no immediate family, Mark and Dave the Jew Epstein took his body out to the countryside and burned it on a funeral pyre and scattered his ashes, duff, Shit is getting real! On yet another occasion, in November 1971, Mark claims that he was hired to murder union leader Desmond Costello. The 17-year-old confronted Costello at night outside the Leinster Arms, a pub in Melbourne, and pointed a gun at him. Costello told him to get f***ed and go away, and threatened to shove the gun up the boy's ass. In response, Mark shot Desmond Costello in the chest and then dragged Costello's body into the pub's keg cake- cellar, which is accessible from a hatch on the outside of the building. A few hours later, at 5am, Mark returned to the cellar to discover that Costello wasn't quite dead, so Mark stomped on Costello's throat, snapping the man's neck. Is he was, When he was doing that interview in like our cold open, was he in prison? How is he not in prison? Wasn't he living on some islands? Like, with all the warrants out for his death? With the guns? How is he not in prison? He's murdering people, and he's part of a gang! That's the sort of shit that gets you life in prison! What's going on?! Then, Mark and an unnamed accomplice carried the body a few blocks and dumped it on the lawn in front of Collingwood Shot Tower, an old lead shot factory that was shut down in 1947 and made into a historical site. Police found Costello's body, but at the time, they never figured out that Mark Reed was his killer. But there's a problem with all of this. According to Mark's old school chum Bernie, the Surrey Road gang never even existed. Bernie claims that the alleged gang was a figment of Mark's imagination, making up tall tales with which he could regale his friends. Even at the time, they thought it was bullsh**. According to Bernie, there was no gang, there were no street balls, and Johnny the Cowboy Harris was never killed. It does seem, seem a bit like… far-fetched, doesn't it? Bernie said that Mark was just a fantasist, and who hires a kid to murder a union gang, uh, a union leader? In later life, Mark, people are probably in the comments being like, Simon, that's happened many times in history. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Children murdering people. How are you? People always like, Simon, you're so naive. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I'm sorry. And then you guys are in the comments being like, Simon, of course this happens. Children are murdering people all the time. And I'm like, for God's sake, why does life have to be like this? I preferred it when I was ignorant, you know? In later life, Mark would take the stories he told friends and published them in multiple books and repeated them during countless newspaper and TV interviews. As for the murder of Desmond Costello, Mark only confessed to it shortly before he died. It's possible that Mark had simply selected an unsolved murder and claimed it as his own. On the other hand, Mark Reed's fellow gangmates, Johnny Harris, Dave Epstein, and Terry Tempest were all real people, and Johnny Harris was never heard from after the date that he was allegedly killed with a broken bottle. certainly at the time of writing, none of the former Surrey Road gang members have come forward to confirm or deny Mark's highly publicized versions of events. Yeah, because unlike Mark, they're like, oh we did crimes? Shut Cut, then! Don't talk about your crimes!" Furthermore, there's nothing to disprove Mark's claim that he murdered Desmond Costello, so the extent of Mark's criminal activities when he was 16 or 17 will forever remain a mystery. The prevailing consensus in Australia is that the Surrey Road Gang was real, and that Mark Reed was a hell of a street fighter. One thing we do know for certain, after being released from the Tirana Boys home in September 1971, Mark Reed got a job working at the farm run by his friend Bernie's dad. After work, Bernie would take Mark and the other farm laborers out for drinks. On December seventeenth, 1971, Mark and Bernie arrived at the dance at Wandin Town Hall in the Melbourne suburb of Croydon and witnessed six bouncers beating the hell out of a friend of theirs. Mark sprang into action and charged at the six men. Bro, six bouncers. You might be a big boy, but there's six of them and they are bouncers and they're already beating someone up so you know they're into violence. Don't do that. The only person that can do that is Jack Reacher and he's not real. Unfortunately, it turns out they were off duty police officers working as bouncers on the side. Oh, dude, this just got worse. The cops beat Mark within an inch of his life, dragged him down to the station, and tossed him in a cell. He was charged with unlawful assault and foul language. (laughs) That's not a law anymore, surely. Mark's parents refused to come down to the station and bail him out, so Mark spent the weekend behind bars. Yep, honestly, pretty good parenting there. I don't know, was it? He got beaten out of, so maybe not. But, like, I don't know, if my kid got arrested for something, like fighting or whatever, I'd be like, well, honestly, yeah, let him sit in prison for a couple of days. <laughs> you need to be consequences to the actions. I'm not just going to come down and bail you out. Not the bails of... Th- Wait, you have bail in Australia? I thought that was, like, an American thing. On December the 20th, he was transported to court where the judge 17th- sentenced the 17-year-old to three months in Pentridge Prison. He got fined $10 for the swearing. The Madness. During his first stint at Pendridge Prison, 17-year-old Mark Reed was locked up in J Division, which was for young offenders. Nevertheless, the youths interacted with adult convicts in the mess hall, showers, and exercise yard. <laughs> that sounds like a brilliant idea. Where should we separate the uh, the people? Well, they could do, you know, have separate everything except for the showers. That sounds like a brilliant idea. According to Reed, he befriended another wayward youth two years his junior called Mad Charlie Hegley. Oh, and an adult inmate threatened to, quote, have Charlie on my or his blood on my knife by the end of the day Mark took action he ambushed the would-be um r-wordist can't say that on YouTube anymore they keep demonetizing me in the prison shower and thrust a shiv up his bottom then savagely kicked the man as he lay writhing in the grounds on agony. Okay, never mind. I guess I'm just not getting monetized today. When the inmate returned from having his anal cavity stitched up in hospital, Mark Reed and sharp Mad Charlie were waiting for him. They attacked him and dumped the contents of his colos- col- colostomy bag over his head. Needless to say, this story is disputed like many of Mark Reed's yarns, but either by the prisoner's ethic of no snitching, or after a relatively uneventful three months, Mark Reed walked out of Pentridge prison in late 1972 without having received additional time. Oh my lord. (laughs) You stabbed a guy up his bottom with a knife, bro. You Gaddafied him. Upon release, Mark lived with his parents and worked as a gardener at a tennis club. He hung out with Bernie and two lads named Jeff and Norm. At the time, Reed had been given the nickname Mad Mark or simply The Madness. (laughs) I wonder how he got that name. He spent his time getting drunk at parties or at pubs with friends. Frequently, these nights ended in some kind of violence. Mark was known to get pissed off when another bloke looked at him the wrong way in public toilets. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. What are you doing making eye contact with anyone in a public toilet? Unless you know them. Uh, and uh, otherwise, and even then, just wait till you're outside. Maybe just a quick nod. And then look immediately to the ground. You're in a public toilet. Don't be looking at people. It's weird. This ended with, it's like when you're taking a piss at a urinal and someone sidles up next to you. It's like, what the f***? What are you doing? That's not appropriate. More than once, this ended with Mark slamming the man's face into the bottom of a urinal. <laughs> This is the sort of psycho that it's like, oh no, I accidentally looked that guy in the eye and now I'm getting like uh, bog washed in a urinal that I just pissed in. On another occasion, Mark runs up angering all of the blokes at a house party and promptly had the sh- Picked out of him on the front lawn, but he refused to surrender, and even began fighting the cops when they showed up to rescue him. Luckily, the cops did not arrest Mark and just told him to bugger off and go home. Mark also had the habit of announcing that he was going to fight every man in the pub, which often did not end well for him. And continuing this bizarre masochistic streak, Mark was once spotted drunk and pointlessly bashing his head into a stone wall at Croydon Station. On another occasion, Mark was getting shitfaced in the pub when a man from out of state announced he was carrying $2,000 in cash. What are you doing? Why would you announce that? You're gonna get in trouble. Mark spent a few hours drinking and playing pool with the guy before robbing him and leaving him unconscious in an alleyway. On another occasion, Mark and his friend Jeff had just been thrown out at the Dorset Gardens Hotel, and Mark decided that he'd take a shotgun he borrowed and shoot out one of the windows as they drove off. But Mark pulled the trigger too early and wound up blasting a massive hole in the car's dashboard. <laughs> no, dude, you are the madness, my dude. One night while drinking in a pub in Croydon, Mark got into a heated argument with a 15-year-old girl and wound up striking her in the face with a pair of pliers. What are you doing, arguing with a 15-year-old? And then what are you doing, hitting a girl? Luckily, she was not badly injured and did not press charges. Press the shit out of those charges! If that were my daughter, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what? Guess what? I make the decisions because she's under 18, and charges are being pressed, Mark. And then he'd come round and murder me, which would suck. (laughs) Mark later transformed this story into his rescuing a young girl from a pimp by smashing the latter in the face with a pair of pliers until he went limp, for which Mark claimed to have gotten two years in prison. He said the girl got out of prostitution thanks to him. None of that is true. In 1973, Valerie and Keith Reed separated, and the 18-year-old Mark sided with his father. They moved into a flat in the suburb of South Yarra. When Keith and Mark later returned to the family home to collect their dog, Noddy, they discovered that Valerie had already taken the Australian Terrier to the vet to have him euthanized. In November of that year, Mark announced that he'd be throwing a party in his father's flat to celebrate his 19th birthday. Mark bought a bunch of booze and invited everyone that he knew. Only four people came. Mark later claimed that this was because he invited rival gang members from across Melbourne, but they all stayed away to avoid a bloodbath. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure, Mark, sure, Mark, sure, Mark, no one came to your birthday party, Mark. Mark's friend Bernie, however, claims that people just didn't want to deal with Mark's violence and erratic behavior when he got drunk. I wouldn't want to deal with Mark's violence and erratic behavior at any time. Mark sounds like a nightmare sober, let alone drunk. He was sober in the prison and he Gaddafied somebody. I'm making that a thing, by the way. By 1974, Mark's antics had alienated Jeff, Norman, Bernie and they were starting to keep their distance from him. Instead, Mark fell in with Mad Charlie Hegele again. Mad Charlie was transitioning to becoming a proper Melbourne gangster. And so it is unsurprising that in 1974 we can see an acceleration in Mark's criminal activities. The two committed various robberies together. Mark also develops the hobby of setting fire to churches, which he verifiably did more than once. It was also around this time that Mark gains the nickname of Chopper. The most credible explanation we have for this nickname is from Mad Charlie. In 1974, Mark began to regularly carry a fire axe, which he used to intimidate people, to gain an edge in fights, and also to randomly vandalize public property, like when he drunkenly hack away at wooden tele- telephone poles. Alternatively, Mark would later claim that his father started calling him Chopper at the age of six or seven, inspired by a loyal bulldog in a 1960s cartoon. But there is no record of any of his friends being aware of the nickname, much less using it prior to 1974 i don't know why is he not embracing the more badass story that he carried around a fire axe also how does anyone get into a fight with someone carrying a fire axe they're giant and red like (laughs) who who picks a fight on the giant dude with an axe and even if he picks a fight on you you're like yo cool no problem no problem (laughs) whatever you need man you got a giant axe On September the 6th, 1974, Mark Chopper Reed joined Mad Charlie, Gary the Greek Kouloupas, and Stephen Mad Archie Amanatides. They went on a ship to the Crest Health Studio, a massage parlor slash brothel in the suburb of Armdale. Chopper and Gary the Greek waited in the fire while Mad Charlie and Mad Archie availed themselves of the establishment services. According to the police report, which is always a good way to start a sentence, (laughs) Mad Charlie was dismayed to discover his otherwise feminine masseuse had a penis and had punched the terrified employee in the face. Hearing the commotion, Chopper ran into the room and held a knife to the masseuse's throat, whom he then robbed for $160. Chopper's like, hey, while I'm here, why not? Chopper would later inflate this number to $1,000 and would also inflate the number of massage parlors they'd been robbing after the incident, saying that they knocked off three or four parlors a night. Police would later cotton on to the identity of the culprits, but for now, the Crest Health studio could only give them generic descriptions. On September the 24th, Chopper was drinking in Dorset Gardens Hotel when he attacked two off-duty police officers who had made fun of him. The cops and the Dorset bouncers restrained Chopper before he could land any blows. The Dorset Garden Hotels Hotel sounds lovely, but I get the feeling it's a bit rough. (laughs) Like, Dorset Garden sounds like do 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 lovely like have afternoon tea maybe some scones i was like no no no, this is this is a rough establishment chopper had equipped one of his fists with a homemade knuckle duster made from a leather strap with two long thick bolts punched through it the ends of which chopper had sharpened into points and secured to the leather with wing nuts chopper's parents refused to post his hundred dollar bail and so he called his ex-friend bernie who generously put up the money Chopper was sentenced to a month in jail. On November 29th, Chopper and Mad Charlie went to another massage parlour in Elwood. Chopper stood guard outside the bedroom, while Mad Charlie R-worded the masseuse. Um, (laughs) how is this guy going to be lovable? He beats up teenage girls. He supports this kind of behaviour he's sounds He seems like a total psycho then they stole a hundred bucks the police were called and chopper and mayor charlie were picked up soon after chopper was charged with armed robbery and being an accessory to r word and the ladder was char- the latter charge was dropped before it went to court chopper and charlie's descriptions also matched those from the crest Health studio so a further charge of armed robbery was added how are you not going to prison for at least a decade for this it's gang activity Violent gang activity. Chopper copped a plea and was given two years for armed robbery. Mad Charlie was given four years an additional and an additional eight for the sexual assault. Chopper would later boast that they had robbed 45 massage parlors and brothels in under two months, but this claim is not true, and now at the age of 20, Chopper was packed off to Pentridge Prison for a measly couple of hundred bucks. Um, and the gang activity, and standing outside while the dude did terrible things. So, yeah, I'd like to have seen him not go there for how long? Two years? How long was it? This wasn't long enough. He needs to be in there for at least a decade. A legend is born. Returning to Pentridge, Chopper was installed in B Division. A mean of prison guard, in an effort to humiliate the new arrivals, ordered them to line up, drop their pants, and roll back their foreskins so he could check for venereal diseases. Um, how about that's the job of a doctor? Oh, When it was Chopper's turn, he grabbed the guard's head, slammed it into his crutch, and rubbed his cock on the man's face, saying, Yeah, get into this, will you, mate? The prisoners erupted into a cavalcade of laughter, and the guard fled the yard in rage and embarrassment. That night, a posse of guards visited Chopper in his cell and beat the shit out of him. (laughs) What a surprise! Chopper laughed at them the entire time. That is, when he wasn't screaming. The next morning, Chopper went out to the exercise yard and painted Mad Mark in two-foot-high letters on the prison wall. In the first half of 1975, Chopper attacked drug dealer Dennis Allen in the showers with a sock filled with soil from the exercise yard. Chopper was acting on the orders of a Melbourne thug named Jimmy Loughnan and the latter's secret prison lover, Danny James. Apparently Dennis Allen had failed to acknowledge Loughlin when he said hello one day. Chopper snuck up on Allen and beat the man unconscious. That same year, Chopper, Loughlin, and James formed the Overcoat Gang, wherein they concealed their weapons by wearing prison-issue overcoats. Chopper had cobbled together a crude tomahawk, which he called Max the Axe. He first used it to attack heroin dealer Alex the Arab Shalala and split open the man's skull. He miraculously did not die. Chopper got a great deal of use out of Max the Axe. he developed the habit of going around the cells of other prisoners in daytime with an empty box, demanding his fellow inmates fill it with cigarettes, food, and other sundry goods, or else he would hit them with his tomahawk. This earned Chopper a great deal of resentment and he once commented, quote "I'm as popular as a pork chop in a synagogue. This seems like I know he's a big dude and stuff, but someone eventually is just gonna like they're gonna they're gonna gaddapher you in the showers." Also, in 1975, singer Rene Geyer was going to perform at the prison, but canceled her appearance when it came out that the Overcoats were plotting to kidnap and well, gang, our word, her. Huh. The cancellation infuriated the other inmates, and the warden banned the Overcoat Gang from attending any prison concerts. On May the 1st, 1975, word got round. Can you, like, if you're going to perform in a prison, surely the security is quite tight? On May the 1st, 1975, word got round that Reginald Isaacs, a convicted paedophile and child murderer, was soon going to arrive in D Division. I get the feeling we're going to get the first one that I support. <laughs> in keeping with prison etiquette, the other prisoners felt duty-bound to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Chopper and Mad Charlie got to it first. The story its like, oh no, the child killer's been murdered in prison?! such a shame, such a shame that there's mob justice, isn't it? Such a shame. The story goes that they cornered Isaacs in his cell and knocked him out. Chopper climbed onto the top bunk and jumped several times onto Reginald Isaacs' head. Then he did the same thing onto his chest. But Isaac still wouldn't die, so Chopper removed Isaacs' shoelaces, tied his hands behind his back, and wrapped bedsheets around Isaacs' neck. Then Chopper and Mad Charlie hanged Isaacs in his cell. They removed the laces, exited the cell, and closed the door behind them. Isaac was discovered the next morning and his death was ruled a self-deletion. Thank you for not using the uh, the other word for that that will definitely get us demonetized. Um, and I apologize for all this dancing around the world. It's just words. It's just what we have to do because I need to, when we make, this is going to be like a four hour four episode, sorry, two hour episode. Um, and I, if I just, I have to do what I can to, to not get these demonetized because otherwise I don't get paid and that sucks. But this, but the fact that this got ruled a self-deletion is wild. Like, as I like, well, somehow yeah, he jumped on his own head many times, jumps on his own chest many times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, what happens? The car's probably rolled up at his side. Like, oh no, the child killer got killed. Oh no, it's such a shame we were looking the other way. Chopper publicly admitted to this murder shortly after his death, saying, anyone who would kill a child in such a manner didn't deserve to live. As to whether Chopper's account is true, perhaps like the murder of Desmond Costello, Chopper was probably not the killer and just trying to add to his notoriety before he shuffled off his mortal coil. There's not much indication in the autopsy report that a 300-pound man had been jumping on Isaac's head and chest, but the report wasn't exactly detailed. Um, yes, but also that sort of thing they wouldn't leave out. So I'm inclined to believe that he probably just did kill himself because they would noticed like a head that had been crushed at a chest that had been crushed by a three hundred pound man—that's very big. Due to Chopper's exploits, the guards in B Division were finding him difficult to handle, and so on June the twenty seventh, nineteen seventy-five, Chopper was transferred to Pentridge Prison's notorious H Division, the punishment block. H Division was nicknamed the Punching Factory because of the violence of the other inmates and the corresponding violence of the guards, who were handpicked as tough men and given their reputed use of batons on men's rectums—virtual sadists. As a prisoner in H Division, talking was forbidden, and a moody silence prevailed throughout the day. You were not permitted to make eye contact with the guards, or else you would be immediately beaten. Cells were frequently tossed for contraband, and the prisoners harassed. Why was this guy not in here from the beginning? He's clearly super violent. Like the… What? How did he not get transferred there on his first day? If the guards attacked you, you'd be a fool to fight back. Several who did did their days as coma patients. However, when Chopper arrived in H Division, the first thing he did, and this is absolutely true, is he went up to the warden and said, quote, Please don't take offense to this, and I say it with all due respect, if any of your staff lays a hand on me, I will kill that member of staff and plead guilty. There's no threat involved. It is simply what will happen if you lay a hand on me. I will get a razor blade, and when your back's turned, I will cut your throat. Holy shit! That is gangster, son. That's the sort of where it's like, you know, when you it's like to get get taken seriously. It's just sometimes you just got to be a king psycho. This guy is a psycho. As a result, the guards never touched Chopper, and in exchange, Chopper never attacked any of the guards. Chopper spent a quiet six weeks in the punishment block before returning to b division in august 1975 i remember a story when i was a kid not a story it's like happened to me there was some kid a couple of years older than me and we were on a school bus to somewhere and i can't remember what it let me just get i haven't thought about this in a very long time but it was one of these moments and i think me and my mate were like just messing with him so i would like get a piece of paper and we'd throw it at him and whatever. Like, you know, just being like cocky kids. And we'd expect him to come up and like punch us on the arm or whatever. You know, you're just being cocky and you get a little beat. And, you know, so far so normal. And this guy's like super calm, super calm. And he just comes up and he just says, if you keep doing that, I'm going to break your arm. And he just goes and sits back down. Never fucked with that guy again. (laughs) And it's like it's like if he'd come up to us and just punched us on the arm a couple of times, half an hour later we'd be throwing up paper at him and just never mess with that kid again. And it taught me a valuable lesson. <laughs> and I mean, it'd probably not have broken our arms. But it was just like that, yeah. But what if he is? What if he's a psycho? <laughs> just never mess with that kid. And he wasn't even a psycho, he was just a normal kid. He wasn't the kid who sits in the corner like, you know, like he's gonna be a murderer someday. He was just a regular kid, like a couple of years older. He just came over and said, like, if you do that again, you're gonna break your arm. Just went and sat quietly back down. Holy <laughs> oh, dude. And, um, yeah, I, I never used that tactic myself later on. <laughs> it's very effective. So, he spent a quiet six weeks in the punishment block before returning to B Division in August 1975. However, good behavior wasn't his strong suit, and he was back in H Division in November for another eight weeks, returning to B Division in January 1976. On January the 24th, the Overcoat Gang attempted to escape Pentridge by breaking through the ceiling of the prison library. However, while hiding in the ventilation shaft, Jimmy Lofton badly needed to urinate and pissed in his overcoat and ditched it in the corner. The piss leaked out into the prison library and ran down the walls, getting them caught. Oh no! No. and so it was back to h division for a good long stretch chopper scored the job of handing out food to the other prisoners and he took the occasion to piss spit and shit in the food of inmates that he did not like chopper's experimentation with gastrological logical quizzy and in the hatred of the other convicts in h division some of whom allegedly came down with gastroenteritis yeah no shit they're eating his shit. On Christmas of 1976, Chopper was accused by the other men in H Division of stealing and eating all of the pork sausages that they'd been gifted as a holiday treat. Chopper always denied doing this. When John Piggy Palmer, a member of the Painters and Dockers gang, repeated the accusation and called Chopper a dog, Chopper punched him in the face. This was a mistake, spawning a grudge from the painters and dockers. In January 1977, they circulated rumor, which may have been true, that Chopper was an informer for the guards. This alienated all the inmates in H-Division and made Chopper a marked man. In March, for his own safety, Chopper was isolated from the other prisoners except his friends Jimmy Loffin and Danny James, and he spent his days breaking rocks in the labor yard. The guards allegedly turned a blind eye as the Overcoat gang amassed weapons, axes, knives, ice picks, hammers, iron bars, and crudely made shivs. Why the Look at the ice picks in prison. Why are they getting ice that needs picking? Overcoat attacks on hostile inmates became regular. On one occasion, Chopper bludgeoned docker member Bobby Barron with an iron bar putting him in hospital. After a long spate of violence, Chopper cornered John Piggy Palmer in the showers, took out his cock, and rubbed it over Palmer's face. By this point, Palmer was too terrified of Chopper to resist. <laughs> Then in August of 1977, to the great relief of many of the inmates and the guards who had to keep cleaning up the mess, Chopper was finally paroled after two and a half years. His original sentence had been extended by several months due to his unrelentingly defiant and brutal behavior. Can you imagine the guards at his parole hearing or whatever? And they're like, so has he been reformed? Is he being a good boy? Yes, absolutely. He's being a good boy. Please. Please let him go. He's so good. He deserves to be out in society. Please let him go. <laughs> Keeps taking his cock out. I mean, nothing. He's great. Chopper had entered Pentridge prison, an incompetent hooligan. He left Pentridge a living legend and a man to be feared, brazen to a fault. Back on the outside, Chopper stayed with his father and spent his time drinking in pubs and working out in gyms. At the time, Chopper had planned to move out to Melbourne. He signed up for the Rhodesian Security Forces, who were taking in foreign white recruits to help fight the guerrilla forces of Robert Mugabe in, today's, in what is today's Zimbabwe. Jesus Christ, wasn't he in the... Where was he? Australia. What, were they just advertising in the local paper? Are you white? Are you racist? <laughs> Wanna come beat the How do some people in Zimbabwe? However, the parole board denied Chopper's request to leave the country. So instead, Chopper went back to robbing brothels and massage parlors to gain a bit of spending money. It developed into a fairly dull routine where the exasperated girls knew Chopper by name and just tossed him a couple of bucks to make him go away. Chopper also alighted on a new scheme. He'd kidnap drug dealers, hold them at the end of his sword off shotgun, and force them to tell him where they'd stashed their money. Occasionally, he would need to beat them, occasionally, he'd need to torture them, and his preferred method of torture soon became custom or burning toes off. Chopper said he felt no guilt over these activities because his victims were, quote, scumbags, basically people I don't like, drug dealers, heroin dealers, people who made a lot of money, killed a lot of people. They had no right to the money. I had no money, so bugger them. Why should I stay on the footpath with my dick in my hand while these cocksuckers drive by in their Mercedes coupes wearing $20,000 Rolex watches and making a lot of money? Why should I have nothing while all these dagos and wogs and assorted third world brand types make a fortune at a heroin um okay it's still crazy dude you can't <laughs> if you if these people were like char murderers or whatever we'd be like, yeah sure burn their toes off but they're just drug dealers they're not i mean they're bad but they don't deserve to have their toes burned off on october the 30th 1977 chopper was in a car with some friends in the party suburb of st kilda when he spotted johnny coral a two-bit thug whom chopper despised he also knew that coral had a handgun stashed at home in Melbourne in those days, handguns were harder to come by than hunting rifles and sword-off shotguns, and they were more desirable because they were easier to conceal. Chopper and the boys pulled over and offered Coral a ride home, which he naively accepted. These dudes would be like, Wait, don't you despise me? Why do you want to give me a ride i would be like, No! No, thank you very much. I'm going to take the bus. I'm going to walk. <laughs> thank you. When they arrived at the apartment building, Chopper pointed his sword-off shotgun at Coral's face and demanded the handgun. Coral refused, so Chopper lowered the shotgun and blasted Coral through the kneecap. Chopper departed without the handgun, leaving Coral in agony in his apartment hallway, laughing about it the whole way home. But it probably wasn't worth it. Coral pressed charges. You shit, he doesn't have a knee anymore. He got a shotgun in the knee. That's it? You're not walking on that leg anymore. Do they replace knees? Like, because kneecapping in the past was the sort of thing that put you in a wheelchair, right? That's why the gangsters did it. It would just ruin your knees. And you'd not be able to walk. Do they? How... Can they replace your knee with, like, a robot knee these days? I feel like that's, like, how hard can that be? (laughs) Probably quite challenging. Meanwhile, in November 1977, Chopper moved in with an 18-year-old prostitute named Cindy, with whom they'd formed a romantic relationship. Cindy was extremely good-looking, tall, blonde, and she charged her customers $600 an hour in modern money. Holy sh- Chopper didn't have to pay a fee, but he did have to reconcile himself with his girlfriend sleeping with scores of other men for a livelihood. In December 1977, Chopper got a letter from Ginny Lofton who was still locked up in Pentridge Prison. Back in May, Jimmy had tried to escape Pentridge by using a rope to climb over the prison wall. Unfortunately, the rope was too short, and Jimmy dropped to the ground and shattered both of his ankles. Ah! Oh! God damn! That's a fool! Jimmy then crawled for a kilometer before he was found, taken to hospital, where the police caught up with him. He was returned to Pentridge and sent to H Division, where a bloke with two broken ankles didn't fare very well. In December, Jimmy wrote to Chopper, saying that his spirit was completely broken, and he asked Chopper to help bust him out of prison. So Chopper hatched a plan. It wasn't only his spirit that was broken. It was the morning of, Dis- of January the 26, 1978, Australia Day. Chopper was due to appear in a St. Gilda court for the shooting of Johnny Coral. Coral skipped his court appearance and instead drank in a pub until 10.30 a.m., whereupon he headed to a completely different courthouse, the old county court, and walked into the first chamber that he saw that was in session. Chopper walked straight up the aisle, past the lawyers, and climbed the bench to where Judge Bill Martin was sitting. Chopper pulled out his sword-off shotgun and pressed it to Martin's throat and threatened to blow the judge's head off. Chopper's plan was to take the judge hostage and only release him once the authorities had freed Jimmy Laughlin from Pentridge. Even if the judge complied, Chopper hadn't considered how he was going to escape. Chopper's a psycho, bro. This is gonna. How are you not going to prison forever now? But things didn't get that far ernie trotter the judge's law clerk called a tipstaff. fun fact managed to restrain chopper and grabbed the arm that was holding the shotgun brave dude meanwhile judge martin kicked chopper in the balls and dashed out of the door behind and dashed out of the door behind the bench police officers ran from the back of the courtroom got chopper on the ground cuffed him and for this dimwitted plan he was sentenced to 12 years in prison with a further two years for the shooting of jimmy coral meanwhile ernie trotter got the queen's medal for gallantry Chopper, now 23, hadn't even been out of prison a full six months. I can't believe he's so young. (laughs) So many crimes have been committed. He's only 23. (laughs) Oh, my God. And he's 12 years in prison. As he deserves. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Oh, yeah, he doesn't have his ears. He gets his ears cut off in prison. Why? While awaiting trial, Chopper was sentenced to H Division at the end of January 1978. He was already marked for death. He had alienated too many people at Pentridge during his last stay, along with still alienating more in the Melbourne criminal underworld during his brief sojourn outside the prison walls. The drug dealers and pimps he robbed had friends on the inside. Killing Chopper was now seen as worth the life sentence. Against the hordes of criminals in H Division who wanted him dead, Chopper had two lines of defense. And there's going to be people in H Division, because that's the baddest of the bad division. They're there forever anyway. They have nothing to lose. There's no worse punishment. The first was Pentridge Prison Governor James Quinn, whom Chopper took care to flatter and entertain with cheeky jokes. Chopper may have also been acting as an informant for him, but this is an unproven allegation. Either way, Quinn turned a blind eye to Chopper's efforts to defend himself, which gave Chopper freedom of action to mete out some brutality without risking an extension to his 14-year sentence. The second line of defense was the Overcoat Gang. By 1978, the Overcoat Gang had expanded to 12 men, only a fraction of whom Chopper could actually trust. The others might sell him out for a pack of smokes, and a mere 12 men against the majority of the prison population didn't exactly inspire optimism, Chopper's only hope was to use the Overcoat Gang in frequent acts of brutality in order to inspire fear. That way, any potential assassins would be too cowed and intimidated to attack Chopper lest they fail to kill him and wind up being victims themselves. Nevertheless, the odds of Chopper surviving the entirety of his 14-year sentence were looking vanishingly slim, especially in an environment as violent as H-Division which contained Pentridge's most hardened criminals. Chopper had only been back in prison two weeks when he was told that his stay in H division would be permanent. He was too much of a handful to be sent to any of the other divisions. Of course he is. They're like, uh, Chopper's back. He's That's where he belongs. Even with the assistance of the overcoat gang who floated in and out of H division whenever they were punished, Chopper having to spend 14 years there was effectively a death sentence. Chopper’s only hope was to self-harm and get locked up in a psych ward. therefore, on the 12th of February 1978, Chopper walked up to Kevin the prof Taylor in the prison yard, handed him a razor blade and demanded that Taylor cut his ears off. Taylor set about the task ah. Ah, dude, soaring away at Chopper's right ear. Taylor's cuts were slow and more tender than what you do to a loaf of bread, extending Chopper's immense pain. Finally, Chopper asked him what the hell he was doing, and Taylor replied, I'm trying to be gentle, mate. Bro, you're cutting his ears off. You just got to go for it. There's no anesthetic. Just, well, what chunk? Chopper growled, you're an idiot. You don't hack someone's ears off gently. You hack through them. Put some muscle into it. Taylor complied, grabbing Chopper more firmly by the ear, and pressing downward with all of his might, slicing the ear clean off. Chopper grabbed a towel and held it to his head to staunch the vigorous flow of blood. Taylor whined, "'You're not going to bash me later, are you?' "'No, you f***ing idiot. Now come here and do the other one. I'm going to look like a right idiot with one ear, aren't I?' (laughs) Bro, one ear is better than no ears. Taylor accordingly cut through Chopper's left ear, then promptly bent over and vomited on the floor. Once Taylor had recovered, he handed Chopper the razor blade so that Taylor wouldn't get any extra time for it. Chopper would initially tell the guards that he'd done it to himself. Meanwhile, the blood was gushing from the side of Chopper's heads. Oh, head. Ah, oh, head! Ah! I don't like this! The guards were summoned, and he was rushed to the hospital. Chopper lost roughly two and a half liters of blood, or roughly half the amount of blood in the average human body he later inflate this figure to five, but that would have bled him white. At hospital, doctors spent nine hours trying to reattach his ears, but they didn't graft. They turned black, and Chopper had to have them permanently removed. When Chopper's mother, Valerie, visited him in hospital and saw the lumpy remnants of flesh on the sides of her son's head, she gave him up for a madman, a lost cause, and permanently disowned him, cutting off all contact. No pun intended, Chopper wondered if he would ever hear from her again. <laughs> okay, that one was intended. Oh. oh my god, this is so crazy. He is crazy! He- For his pains, Chopper was reassigned from H Division to the psych ward of G Division for nine months probably saved his life. In May 1978, Chopper went to trial and learned that he'd have to serve a minimum of his 11, four years, 14-year sentence. By that point, he'd be 34 years old, having spent most of his 20s inside. While in G-Division, Chopper spent most of his time in an observation cell with a perspex window so that guards could keep him from further self-harm, in that the light in his cell was kept on at night. In October, he was taken off self-harm watch and given a regular cell, being able to spend more time outside of it. It was a peaceful few months where Chopper didn't have to fear any violence. Outside prison walls, word of Chopper cutting his ears off hit the media, turning him into a celebrity. Betrayal and Benzos. On November the 14th, 1978, Chopper was returned to H Division. It was back in the punching factory that Chopper got word from his teenage prostitute girlfriend, Cindy, that she was dumping him. Yeah, Chopper, mate, you're in prison for 14 years and you don't have any ears anymore, Chopper. She had shacked up with Chopper's friend Jeff against whom, and enraged Chopper vowed a bloody revenge. Chopper would later go on to claim that Cindy had slept with all of his friends in order to sully her reputation as this loyal trollop. A month later, on September the fifteenth, Chopper was in Industry Yard Number 2 making broomsticks with Johnny Price and Jimmy Loughnan, the latter of which had begged Chopper to bust him out of prison, leading Chopper to moronically take a judge hostage, earning him 12 of the 14 years of his sentence. Over the past few weeks, in Industry Yard Number 2, Price, Loughlin, and Chopper had used a smuggled-in hacksaw. To cut a hole in the mesh fence that separated the industry yard from the guard's catwalk. Chopper climbed through the hole and was immediately spotted by a prison guard, Mick Milson, a short and thin man who had no firearm, just a black baton. Milson ran up to Chopper and hit him 20 times with the baton, but it seemed to have no effect. Chopper didn't retaliate. He stoically took the beating before disdainfully saying, (laughs) Piss off, Mick. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) That is very uncharacteristic for him. He beats up anything that moves. Milson stood aside and watched as Chopper helped Price and Lofnan through the hole onto the catwalk. Milson continued to do nothing because Price and Lofnan were armed with shivs. He watched helplessly as the three inmates climbed out of a small window onto the roof of H Division before Milsen ran to sound the alarm. Meanwhile, Chopper and his comrades climbed up a weather vane and onto the roof of A Division, now being 120 feet or 36 meters up in the air. That's very high. By now, the entire prison was on lockdown, and so the three men gave up any hope of escaping. It also wasn't long before television cameras had shown up to film the three men on the roof. Realizing this was an opportunity to win another stay in the psych ward of G-Division, Chopper theatrically removed his shirt and spread out his arms like Christ crucified and ordered Jimmy Lofton to slash him with his shiv. Jimmy cut six crosses into Chopper so deep that the blade hit bone. You're like, Jimmy! Just for show, Jimmy! Not down to the bone, Jimmy! Then Chopper picked up a loose piece of wood studded with nails and started hitting himself in the head with it. He then threatened to light his shirt on fire, but it was all for naught. This time, after a few days in hospital, Chopper wasn't sent to the relatively cushy psych ward of G-Division. He was instead locked up in Gen Pop of D-Division. He was charged with leaving his place of work and disobeying a lawful order. At his trial on March 15, 1979, Chopper pretended to be deranged and claimed that he was Genghis Khan in a final attempt to reach the psych ward. Instead, six months was tacked onto his sentence and he was packed off to H Division. In May 1979, the other inmates in the punching factory put a $10,000 contract on Chopper's life. That's approximately $41,000 in modern money. In response, Chopper plotted to take a guard hostage so the overcoat gang could temporarily take over the division, swipe the keys to the cell doors, go into each prison cell one by one, and stab all of their enemies with an ice pick, either killing or paralyzing them. Jesus Christ, this guy. Jimmy Loughlin thought the plan was idiotic and would probably keep him in prison for the rest of his life. Nevertheless, planning for the Siege of H Division continued. By August, Loughnan was getting nervous. He decided to betray Chopper and collect that $10,000 bounty. Uh Uh-oh, Loughlin. Uh Uh-oh. He recruited Grey Bluey Brazel to help take the giant man down. Loughlin walked up to Chopper in the yard and stabbed him in the gut. Chopper initially thought that Jimmy had punched him until blood started to flow from Chopper's mouth. Oh my. Like when you get stabbed somewhere else and then blood comes out your mouth, that's a bad sign. Chopper just stood there, stunned at the betrayal. Jimmy stabbed him three more times before Chopper grabbed him by the neck and held him against the wall. <laughs> Jimmy due to- Jimmy immediately dropped the shiv, knowing that Chopper could easily break his neck or strangle him to death. Chopper, in turn, spared Jimmy's life and let him go. Jimmy Lofton and Greg Brazel then cut their own arms with their shivs so they could claim self-defense and summon the guards. Chopper would gallantly support this story of self-defense, so Lofton and Brazel didn't do any extra time. Good lord. Chopper was rushed to hospital, where surgeons were forced to remove a chunk of his spleen, several meters of his lower intestine, and nearly all of his gallbladder. Holy sh**, dude. That's that's f- you got up! I don't know what a gallbladder does, but it sounds important. As a result of the attack, Chopper lost about sixty pounds or twenty-seven kilograms in weight. He was also left physically weak, ending his prison exploits for the time being. But worst of all, Chopper said that he felt heartbroken, that he'd been betrayed by Jimmy Lofnan, the supposed friend for whom he was doing twelve years in Pentridge prison. Yeah, this dude tried to break you out, Jimmy, you piece. I mean, Chopper's also a piece, but Jimmy especially. You snitch. Not snitch, but like you um Benedict Arnolds. You're welcome, Americans. In 1980, Chopper was transferred to the newly built Jika Jika High Security Unit to prevent him from being killed by the inmates of H Division. Jika Jika was designed to keep staff and inmates separate at all times to avoid violence erupting between the two. Convicts moved through the unit via a series of locked doors that were opened remotely. In order to keep the inmates from each other's throats, Jika Jika was brightly lit, 24 hours a day, and security cameras viewed every nook and cranny of the place. Oh God, horrible although i'd rather be in there than in h division if someone's like do you want to go with the violent prisoners or do you want to be alone all the time i'm like i mean it's the one with the 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 remote doors (laughs) yeah you can watch me take. that's fine Inmates at Jika Jika had no labor duties, only what they volunteered to do. Chopper did a little sewing, but spent most of his time lazing about in his cell, reading letters from his growing fan club of would be gangsters from the outside, or wandering aimlessly in the hallways. The only thing that would kill the monotony were the contact visits Chopper would get from his father, Keith, and also from a large breasted woman with no teeth. The latter was banned after she was caught giving Chopper a blowjob. Oh my god. Chopper was further devastated when his father moved to Tasmania, depriving him of their visits too. Compared to the jungle lore of H-Division, Jika Jika was like living in a monastery. The boredom started to get to Chopper, and he began developing petty animosities towards the other inmates. On January 7, 1981, Chopper stabbed Alex Samakis, a triple-murderer, with a pair of tailors shears from the prison labor workstation. Chopper got him repeatedly in the neck before Samakis fled into the prison showers. Chopper chased after him. Then guards came streaming into the room to subdue Chopper before he could do any more damage. Samakis was rushed to hospital and survived. Chopper, meanwhile, dipped his hand into a puddle of blood and wrote, Sorry, Alex, on the man's cell door. That- <laughs> what did he do to you? This- up a few weeks later chopper demanded that he be allowed to go to the dentist but his request was refused in a bizarre form of retaliation chopper used a sink faucet to smash out 11 teeth on the right side of his mouth the prison psychiatrist was unable to diagnose the- diagnose the cause of this behavior ruling that chopper was completely sane but was simply quote unquote an eccentric however the shrink prescribed a regular dose of xanax and sarapax and and chopper was originally told they were vitamins the plan this vitamin makes me feel relaxed, <laughs> and it says "addicts" on the side. The plan was to keep Chopper drowsy and docile at all times. In September 1983, after three years in Jika Jika, Chopper was transferred to H Division. There he began corresponding with Margaret Kasser, who was friends with another woman whose husband was in Pentridge. Kasser originally wrote Chopper on a lark, but they soon developed a connection in a flurry of emails, and eventually Kasser visited Chopper in prison. Again, they seemed to hit it off. Kasser's influence also seems to have spurred Chopper to put some good behavior in so he could get out early. Accordingly, as a result of his lack of violence in J Division, In March of 1984, Chopper was transferred to the medium security prison at Geelong. An hour, wait, he just had to do, how long? I don't know, it doesn't say, but like, he got to medium security? This guy, he stabbed a dude in the neck with shears. How? he's like, oh no, he's been good for a couple of months, so we're moving to medium security prison. What is going on? On the prison van ride over, Chopper drank two bottles of aftershave in celebration and was so intoxicated that he could barely stand. While at Geelong, the authorities again kept Chopper heavily sedated, first with Amatol, but they switched him to. You've. You. You hypnos. You hypnos? You hit him, posse. Once Chopper complained that he was hearing voices. Chopper occasionally supplemented his medication with marijuana, heroin, and meth that was being regularly smuggled into the prison by visitors and a handful of guards. Pretty soon, Chopper started intimidating other inmates into surrendering their stashes to him. Word of this eventually reached prison authorities, and in December 1984, he was transferred back to Pentridge Prison, J Division, as a punishment. Where he belongs. He belongs in the in the bad one. In February 1985, a prisoners' strike kicked off in protest of the poor. Conditions at Pentridge, and the inmates collectively refused to do labor duties or follow orders. In the third week of the strike on March the 7th, 1985, Chopper again climbed out of J Division and onto the high roof of A Division. Again, the news cameras arrived. Chopper negotiated with the guards for several hours, refusing to come down and demanding to be transferred to a medium security prison again. Instead, he was packed back off to H Division. <laughs> They'll be like, yeah, 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 Chopper, sure, sure. After the violence and near escape, we're going to take you to medium security. We promise, Chopper. Okay, down I come. Yeah, 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 mate. We lied. You're going to the bad part of the prison. You're going back to that place where they all want to kill you. However, this time round, Chopper's stay in the punching factory was quieter than previous as the drug epidemic that had consumed Geelong Prison spread to Prentridge. Inmates spent more of their time off their heads than bashing their heads together. The only incident during Chopper's return to H Division was that he caught word Alex Simakas, still in Jika Jika, had contracted, contracted a drug dealer named Nick Apostolides, Apostolides to kill him in revenge for the Taylor Shears incident. However, Apostolides was too intimidated by Chopper and just hid in his cell. Smart move, to be honest, mate. But the incident was enough to trigger alarm with the Pentridge governor, who placed Chopper in protective custody, separate from all the other inmates. It was clear that Chopper couldn't be housed in gen-pop without the temptation of renewed violence afflicting all involved. And so, in 1986, Chopper was shipped to Bendigo Medium Security Prison, two hours northwest of Melbourne. When word got round that Chopper was coming to Bendigo, a group of inmates there met in the prison yard to vote on whether they should kill him once he arrived. In medium security prison, do you want to go to like bad prison? Chopper still had a reputation for his random attacks on other inmates, and there were lingering rumors that there was an inf- that he was an informant for the guards. Two inmates voted to kill him immediately; the rest opted to see how things went. After Chopper got there, once it became clear that Chopper had mellowed since his glory days at H Division. They let the matter rest. Over the course of 1986, Chopper's lover Margaret Caser petitioned the parole board to have Chopper released from his sentence five years early. <laughs> if this happens. I will be shocked and alarmed, Australia. She claimed that Chopper was a changed man, which seemed to be reflected in his recent behaviour records, and she said that she'd be able to provide a stable environment for him to re-enter society. There's nothing stable about you, Margaret. You wrote to a violent dude in prison and began a relationship with him. There is something wrong with you. If you're doing that, there's something wrong with you. I don't think there's any room for debate there. It's slightly mad." Gasser was relentless, writing countless letters, making dozens of phone calls, and collecting glowing character references from anyone on the outside who would provide one. And it worked. No, Australia, no! On November the twenty fourth, 1986, Chopper Reed was once again a free man. He'd served nine years of his 14-year sentence, cheating the 11-year minimum and the additional time he was given for random acts of violence during the first few years of his incarceration. Chopper was now 31, and he intended to make up for lost time, in Chopper's trademark style, of course. War. Freshly liberated. Chopper initially moved into a Melbourne apartment with Margaret, but life amongst the Free Folk was in many ways just as fraught with danger as H-Division. For every inmate whom Chopper had bashed, stabbed, mocked, or forced to eat his shit in prison, there were several hostile friends and relatives on the outside willing to exact revenge. But it would appear that Chopper had become slightly less reckless since the last time it enjoyed the taste of freedom, but only slightly. He stockpiled a cache of weapons, eight sawn-off shotguns, a dozen pistols and revolvers, some assorted high explosives, including a rocket filled with gun. Powder and a collection of landmines. Where the f are you getting this shit? The hardware came courtesy of well we're about to find out. Came courtesy of Tropa's old pal Mad Charlie Hag Hege- who had become a high-ranking gun and key chemical supplier in Melbourne's budding budding meth trade. Ah, oh, yes, the meth dealer who has access to landmines. Oh, he was a he was a gun runner. He does both. He's like he's a key chemical supplier and also does a bit of gun running on the side. <laughs> he could he could get some landmines like some Lord of now Charlie also hired Chopper to work as his body card for $2,000 a week, a handsome wage in those days. Additionally, in December 1986, Chopper decided that he would keep no place of permanent residence in Melbourne. To throw his enemies off his scent, he moved in with his father, Keith, in a small town of Lawston in northern Tasmania, just across the Bass Strait from Chopper's old stomping grounds. Chopper would meet with his parole officer in Lawston one day a week and would travel under, assumed na- under an assumed name back to Melbourne for six days to wreak havoc. Sometimes he would stay with Margaret in a house in Collingwood. Sometimes he would lay up in a cheap hotel. He kept his sleeping arrangements random. As a result, Chopper was extremely difficult to track down. He'd materialize out of thin air in Melbourne streets, pubs, and dive bars when he wanted to cause some trouble, and then disappear again. His enemies had no way of figuring out where he slept in order to arrange a hit when Chopper had his guard down. It was like a loud, lumbering six-foot-two phantom. On December the 2nd, 1986, mere eight days after Chopper was released from Bendigo, he went to a pub in downtown Melbourne to meet with Police Sergeant Rod the Rocket Porter. Chopper wanted to turn informant. Without scruple or hesitation, Chopper treacherously agreed to keep, to keep Sergeant Porter appraised of the movements of Mad Charlie. What? the, the <laughs> Chopper? What the? He also dobbed on drug dealer Nick Apostolatist, the cowardly would-be assassin who had been released prior to chopper in early 1986. Yeah, that's fair. But it wasn't his mate. Wasn't Charlie his mate? Chopper supplied Porter with the whereabouts of a meth cook for a Melbourne biker gang, right down to the location of the biker's gun stash, the two German shepherds he had, and which room in his home the guy slept in. The cops raided the place and arrested the man, earning Chopper a lot of trust. Throughout 1987, Chopper continued to supply the police with reliable information on everything from drug runners to suspected cop killers. When asked why he was doing this, Chopper replied, "'I'm not doing this for the money, just for the satisfaction of putting all these assholes behind bars.'" Okay. It seems a bit like you're a criminal. Isn't that like that criminal thing of like not grassing on each other? He's like, I don't give a sh**. <laughs> this seems to not just be false humility. Chopper was genuinely pissed off at the criminal elements of Melbourne who had rejected him and wanted him dead. Informing on them seemed like a good way to exact revenge and keep himself safe. He had also been betrayed too often to give a sh** about supposed friendships with men like Mad Charlie. Chopper also resented how these same elements seemed to be getting rich off selling smack to addicts and then running extortion rackets on legitimate businesses. Look, mate, you're not exactly some sort of Robin Hood wonder criminal. You've done plenty of terrible s. used to go around just robbing massage parlors for no reason. That's the same thing. The other advantage of being an informant was that cops turned a blind eye to Chopper's own criminal activities, provided that he only targeted Melbourne scum. Chopper resumed kidnapping and torturing drug dealers for their money. He also began to deliberately antagonize the Carlton crew, a mafioso outfit composed of Italians and Greeks led by Alphonse Gangitano, nicknamed the Black Prince of Lygon Street. Chopper would mock and insult the Carlton crew in public, knowing he was relatively safe from retaliation, because if the Carlton's publicly killed a police informant, they had no way of finding him in Melbourne otherwise. The cops would come down on them like a ton of bricks. Chopper was a sole operator who lived from wad of cash to wad of cash. The Carlton crew had a whole operation of extortion and illegal gambling going on. They had a lot more to lose. In March 1987, Chopper showed up to a party in the house of Nick Apostolidis. Again, Chopper's would-be assassin. Yeah, and I know, I'm pronouncing his name different every time. (laughs) It's a Greek name. It's very hard. Chopper got into an argument with a drug dealer named Chris Lyapis and wound up shooting him in the stomach. Chopper immediately felt guilty and drove Lyapis to the hospital. He realized that if Lyapis squealed, the police might find the shell casing from the bullet and match it to Chopper's gun. This might be too much for the cops to ignore and might land him back in prison. You'd like to think so, right? It's like, yeah, 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 he's an informant and he's useful, but he shot someone. He needs to be in prison. So he went back to Nick house at night and burned it down. Then, with no lost love for his would-be assassin, Chopper drove to the house of his mother and merrily shot out her front windows. <laughs> and if there was ever a warning, that is it. In 1987, Chopper's vendetta against the Carlton crew came to a head. Chopper showed up to one of Alfonso Gangtiano's gambling dens, opened his coat and revealed that he had several bricks of nitroglycerin blasting jelly strapped to his torso. Chopper claimed that in the ensuing panic, Gangtiano had to crawl out of a small window in the toilets. The Carlton crew put a $30,000 contract on Chopper's life, but there were few takers and nobody seemed to be able to track him down. Meanwhile, as a precaution, Gangitano fled to Sicily, and on the other side of things, Sergeant Rod the Rocket Porter was shocked and appalled at how big a target Chopper was painting on his own back and gave him a spare bulletproof vest. Chardon Porter Sergeant Porter felt certain Chopper wasn't long for this world. A few days later, at 11 p.m., on June the 11th, 1987, Chopper showed up at the house of Shane Goodfellow, a drug addict, two-bit bandit and old friend of Chopper's from the Tirana Boys' home. Although in 1978, Chopper had once beaten the shit out of Goodfellow when they were both in H Division for hanging around with the wrong people. That night, Chopper arrived at Goodfellow's house, armed with two automatic pistols, one revolver and a sword-off shotgun. Automatic pistols, like an Uzi. Like a pistol, something you're holding in your hand, I guess they do have automatic ones, but that's, these are proper weapons. Goodfellow demanded that Chopper leave the guns outside as his pregnant girlfriend, Kim Powers was in the house. Chopper and Goodfellow got shit-faced off some whiskey and talked for several hours, during which Chopper boasted that he was regularly extorting money from several drug dealers and armed robbers, who were mates of Goodfellow's. He added that he planned to murder Jeff Lamb, who trafficked foreign sex, work- sex workers and ran several Melbourne brothels. Chopper also let slip that he was a police informant. Oh, no. <laughs> if you're a police informant, don't get so drunk that you that your lips get loose that's just got to be a basic rule if you've got and also don't be like yeah, yeah yeah no i'm ripping off your mates what are you doing that's insane you're gonna get in big trouble how bold are you he drunkenly exaggerated, going so far as to say that he had been informally deputized by the National Crime Authority to clean up Melbourne streets. Because Goodfellow looked pale and sickly from his drug use, Chopper flicked a few hundred dollars at him, announcing that he was going to catch a taxi, taxi to the Bajangles nightclub in St. Kilda. After Chopper left, Goodfellow immediately got on the throne to Frankie Velastro and Graham Jensen, two mates that Chopper had boasted about robbing, telling them to get over to Bajangles. Then, Goodfellow and Power hopped in the car and headed over to the nightclub as well. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> A normal person, this is where you end up murdered, Chopper. But somehow, you're going to come out on top. Let's find out how. At 4 a.m., Chopper turned up to bejangles, drunk as a brewer's fart. There, he found an equally shit shit-flaced Sam Mehmet Ozakam, better known as Sammy the Turk, a low-rent thug occasionally employed as an enforcer and general dog's body in a few of Melbourne's brothels. Sammy had been propping up the bar all night, celebrating the fact that it just made a thousand bucks from a job. Chopper found him boasting loudly about it to the bartender. Seeing the opportunity for a robbery, Chopper sat down next to Sammy and they started drinking together. Meanwhile, two cars containing Goodvella, Powell, Valastro, Jensen and two other mates they had recruited along the way pulled up outside Bojangles. They sent in Kim Powell to see if Chopper was in there. The plan was to allegedly confront Chopper and threaten to kill him if he didn't leave Melbourne, return to Tasmania and never come back. Also, they later testified. Or <laughs> he planned it. We were going to tell him he's a very naughty boy and tell him to go away and never come back. Or or maybe they were going to murder him. Maybe that was the plan. It is equally possible they planned to kill Chopper that very night. Yes, isn't it just. Kim Powell entered the Bojangles and spotted Chopper with Sammy the Turk at the bar. She then went to use the toilet. When she emerged again, she saw that Chopper and Sammy had disappeared. Apparently, while Powell was preoccupied with her excretions and ablutions, Sammy had offered to sell Chopper a handgun, and the two men had gone out into the darkened parking lot on the side of the club, just around the corner from where Goodfellow and his friends were waiting. Chopper's like, Mate, I was just going to rob you for a $1,000, now I'm going to rob you for a handgun as well. Nice. I'm going to rob you with your own gun, turkey. Walking into the parking lot with Chopper, Sammy the Turk did not go to the car and retrieve a handgun. In fact, there was no handgun in the vicinity. Sammy was completely unarmed. Given that Sammy was heavily intoxicated in addition to speaking English as a second language, he was having trouble communicating with Chopper. He drunkenly slurred, They'll be here in a minute. They'll be here in a minute. Of course, Sammy the Turk had made no telephone call to some friends to bring a gun prior to leaving the Bajangles, so it's possible that after drinking all night, he had simply degenerated into a state of blackout incoherence. Chopper didn't know what Sammy meant, but it did trigger his paranoia, giving him how many people wanted him dead. Quote, I said, Who's they? And I turned around to see nothing behind me. And I thought, would they be here in a minute, you treacherous bastard? He then asked Sammy if he had brought him outside to kill him, which Sammy denied. Chopper had already intended to rob Sammy of the promised handgun, along with all the money that he was flashing at the bar. But now that the vague smell of betrayal had entered the air, Chopper reached behind his back, pulled out the sword-off shotgun he had tucked into his belt under his jacket. Dude, a sword-off shotgun's not a small weapon. This is a big dude. And he leveled it four inches from Sammy's head. Quote, and so I shot him. As you do. I shot him, and down he went. And that was it. Yeah, you shot him in the face with a shotgun, bro. That's it. Sammy the Turk was dead before he hit the ground. Chopper reached into the victim's coat pocket and relieved the corpse of around $800. Chopper then picked up the spent shotgun cartridge, tossed it onto the roof of the Jangles, and then he went inside and laughingly told the club manager that he'd shot a Turk in the parking lot, before departing to sleep off the booze. The next morning, Rod the Rocket Porter caught wind of the news that Sammy the Turk had his head blown off outside the jangles, and so, naturally, the sergeant contacted his informant and asked him if he knew anything about it. Chopper initially denied having anything to do with it. Porter replied that Tro- Chopper had been seen with Sammy the Turk at the jangles that night. Chopper chuckled and proceeded to tell Porter that he and Sammy had gone out to the parking lot. Sammy had started blabbing about how someone would be arriving, and then asked Chopper if he had a gun already. Chopper replied in the affirmative and showed Sammy the automatic 32 Beretta tucked into the front of his pants. Chopper then claimed Sammy grabbed the gun, aimed it at Chopper's head, several, and pulled the trigger several times. But Sammy had forgotten to pull back the hammer, as is required for an automatic Beretta, and so the gun clicked harmlessly. Chopper claimed it was only then that he pulled out his shotgun and blew Sammy's head off. Chopper speculated to Porter that Sammy the Turk was probably trying to fill one of the many contracts out on his life. Of course, this was all a lie, as Chopper later admitted to the media. When I killed Sammy the Turk, that wasn't self-defense, that was outright f- murder. <laughs> He must... We're, David's alluded to it a few times, right? That he dies. We know he dies. And I get the feeling because he's on his... There was like deathbed confessions and stuff. So he knows he's going to die. And so he's telling these stories and just admitting to stuff or embellishing stuff because he knows he's going to die, right? And he's like, I have to get... <laughs> Rod the Rocket Porter didn't report the half-truthful confession at the time. Meanwhile, Melbourne Homicide followed up a lead with another suspect who had previously quarreled with Sammy the Turk over a woman, and who owned an identical sort off shotgun. When that suspect was cleared by an alibi, Melbourne Homicide turned their attentions to Chopper, who was known to have been a bajangles that night. Kim Powell confirmed that she had seen him with Sammy, and also lied that she had seen the flash of the shotgun as she returned to her boyfriend's car. On, why would you lie about that? <laughs> On June the 26, 1987, Chopper was a arrested and charged with first-degree murder and thrown into Pentridge Prison H Division while awaiting trial. Welcome home, Chopper! He hadn't even made it a year on the outside. While Chopper was incarcerated, police added criminal charges for the shooting of Chris Liepas and the arson on Nick Apostololos' home. When it came to Sammy the Turk, Chopper stuck to his story that it acted in self-defense. He also started threatening authorities that if he went down for the murder charge, he would expose the extent of Melbourne police corruption, calling them his atomic bombs. Among other things, Chopper claimed that the police had actually put him up to a lot of his criminal activities in order to help clear out Melbourne's underworld. While locked up in H Division, Chopper put in a request to be transferred to Jika Jika for his own protection. In his letter to the review committee, he added, If Prisoner Reed is provided with a knife, protection would not be required. Prisoner Reed is vastly unpopular within criminal circles, as Prisoner Reed stands for Truth, Justice, and the Australian Way. His transfer request was granted? Okay, and here's your knife, my good man. In October 1987, while locked up in Jika Jika, Chopper was reunited with his ex friend Jimmy Lofton, the man who had stabbed Chopper three times in an attempt to collect a $10,000 bounty. Chopper assured Lofton that it was water under the bridge. It's like, Lofton, you're the reason that I don't have a gallbladder and that half my intestines are missing. That would not go so quickly under the bridge. Loughlin was in the middle of planning a protest against poor conditions in Jika, Jika so Chopper advised that Loughlin and his compatriots pile up boxes and mattresses to block the autom- automatic doors to their wing in Jikajika Jika and light them on fire to cause a little chaos. Loughlin and five others naively followed Chopper's advice, but Chopper knew that the lack of outside ventilation in Jika, Jika might cause Loughlin some real problems, and accordingly, after they set the fire, Loughlin and his mates all died of smoke inhalation and were found in the toilets, perishing as they desperately tried to breathe through the pri- pipes in the prison sinks that's fucked up that's super Fucked up. Chopper stood trial for the murder of Sammy the Turk in February 1988. He stuck to the story he told Porter about Sammy stealing his gun and trying to shoot him first in order to collect on a contract. The prosecution's star witness, Kim Powell, inadvertently colored the jury's perception of this story, because she, Goodfellow, and four other men were only there that night to confront Chopper with similar hostile intent, maybe even to kill him. The jury were also made aware of the number of enemies that Chopper had in Melbourne, so the idea that Sammy the Turk had been sent to kill him didn't seem seem unfeasible. Chopper later remarked, I thought to myself that if anyone believes this story, they got rocks in their head, but everyone swallowed it. I couldn't understand, and you know, the next thing, the jury has come back and said not guilty. I didn't cheer, I was just dumbfounded as the jury walked out. I couldn't believe it. Not guilty for that? God almighty. Thank God you can't be tried twice. (laughs) Chopper had managed to bluff his way out of a life sentence for the cold-blooded murder of Sammy the Turk. He did, however, receive a total of four years' imprisonment for the shooting of, shooting of Chris Lapis and the arson of Nick Apostolatos' house, so once again, at age only 33, he was off back to H Division. Punching a Gift Horse in the Mouth During his trial, Chopper had outed himself as working with the police, even if he did exaggerate his involvement with them. This made him as a target of extreme hatred among the other convicts. He spent a lot of time in his cell. At night, the other inmates would shout abuse at him from their cells and threatened to kill him. When Chopper did go out in the yard, he stayed in the company of Frank Waghorn, a friend of his from the 1970s, who was menacing enough to ward off any trouble. Wait, Chopper himself wasn't menacing? <laughs> this dude sounds terrifying. Chopper's status as a police informant also seemed to have gotten protection from the guards. It was likely the favoritism shown to Chopper by the guards that probably saved his life. In fact, the special treatment Chopper received also extended to a certain degree of impunity from punishment. One night, a Melbourne extortionist named Richard Mladenich had shouted an insult at Chopper from his cell. The next day in the yard, Chopper was handed a shovel by the guard. He walked up Mladenich and hit him in the head with it, fracturing the man's skull. The guard did not restrain Chopper after the incident. He didn't even utter a word. And in the aftermath, Chopper received no punishment. Several other inmates in the yard confirmed this version of events. That's not to say that Chopper's stretch in prison this time was replete with violence. He mostly stayed quiet to secure the earliest possible release. And during the last few months of his incarceration, Chopper focused increasingly on his budding literary career. How this came about was in December. Oh, yeah, he wrote all those autobiographies, right? It was in December of 1990. He had been interviewed by John Sylvester for the Herald Sun. The resulting article amounted to Chopper bragging obnoxiously about his crimes, real and imagined, and showing zero remorse. This pissed off the parole board so much that they added another six months to his sentence. But it was probably worth it, because Sylvester and another journalist, Andrew Rule, approached Chopper scene afterward and proposed they ghostwrite a book about his life. Chopper responded with several hundred letters, which Sylvester and Rule stitched together to make Chopper from the inside. It was published in December 1991, a month after his release, which he dedicated to, quote, the human filth that I have bashed, belted, iron-barred, axed, shot, stabbed, kneecapped, set on fire, and driven to their graves. It quickly became an international bestseller. Yeah, people love this shit, right? Meanwhile, Chopper returns to Launceston, Tasmania to live with his father and Margaret Kasser. He must have made quite a bit of money. An international bestseller? Oh boy. Thanks to the robust book sales and interview fees, money was no problem. Chopper spent his days gambling at the local casino and drinking in pubs, where he developed the practice of taking his semi-erect penis out of his fly while standing at the bar, wagging it at good-looking women and shouting, "Say hi to Mr. Dicky!" and laughing as they fled in horror. Bro, is it <laughs> you're on parole, aren't you? Like. One crime and you go back to prison? He stockpiled a massive arsenal of guns and hired a young man named Trent to act as his personal assistant and chauffeur for 500 bucks a week. Trent can be seen in the 1992 60 Minutes interview being showered with shards of glass from a bottle the chopper shoots out of his hands. Oh, okay. Ah, originally I was like, I assumed he was working for the interviewer, but he's this guy's assistant. One shard lodged in his neck. Holy shit. Because of Chopper's natural reputation as a lively and entertaining badass, he was quickly adopted by Outlaw's Motorcycle Club, despite the fact that he didn't even know how to ride a motorbike. He briefly became friends with its former president, Sidney Collins. And I say briefly because Collins invited Chopper to his wedding, and as per bike custom, demanded that Chopper donate $8,000 to it as a gift. What the f***? Come to my wedding. I need eight grand. (laughs) What? Troppel was annoyed by this request, stating, quote, What do all these bloody bikies want to invite me to their bloody weddings for? you got to bring bloody large amounts of money. Stick it up your bum. They're like, oh, he's rich because of the book sales. Let's invite him and ask him for eight grand. Why, what? what? That's that's a lot of money. On May the thirteenth, 1992, Chopper shot Collins in the stomach with Collins' own gun while they were riding in the back of the car. As usual, young Trent was driving. Chopper then asked the gut shot Collins if he would also like to be shot in the head, or whether he'd keep quiet while they drove him to the hospital. The wounded Collins swore that he wouldn't snitch, so Chopper ordered Trent to drive to the emergency room, but Collins immediately snitched on Chopper to the police. Uh-oh, aren't you he the head of a motorcycle gang? You know the rule, Co- um, Collins come on as did trent once they questioned him oh trent at trial the jury found Chopper guilty and under the tasmanian dangerous criminals act the judge jailed him indefinitely at risden prison without any specific sentence whoa you could do that just like indefinite prison that's kind of up at least if you got life you know you got life indefinite like i'd say that's a bit cruel you gotta let people know how long they're in prison for. And I think I mean life is what Chopper needs. He needs to go to prison forever, doesn't he? But uh indefinite? That's a, that's a bit un that's a bit mean. He would be locked up at Her Majesty's pleasure for as long as the justice system pleased. Only having been released for six months and having been locked up for all but thirteen months since the age of twenty, the now 37-year-old Chopper was looking at the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison. Something about leopards and spots. While Chopper was languishing in Risden Prison, Margaret Casser told him that it was over and moved back to Melbourne. She couldn't be a prison widow. Yo, Margaret, you wrote to him while he was in prison. What the f- Margaret? You're not right. You're not right in the head, Margaret. Not long after, Chopper was written by Marianne Hodge, a tax clerk from Hobart. There are these crazy people writing to prisoners like "marry me, prisoner, you psycho." What's a, it, there? Is a disease, right? There's like this has a name it's psycho, that's what it is, who had read his book and developed a crush on him. He ignored the letter. He'd been getting love letters from dozens of women, many of them, likely hebristophiles. Boom! A persistent Marianne showed up to the prison in October 1992. They immediately hit it off, and like Margaret Cassa before her, Marianne immediately began a, let- a campaign to get Chopper out of jail. The idea was to get the Tyrannical Dangerous Criminals Act overturned, and in this task Chopper gained prominent politicians like Malcolm Fraser and respected jurists like Michael Hodgman QC. As his allies. When Chopper married Mary Ann Hodge inside of Risden Prison in 1995, Hodgman was his best man. Meanwhile, Chopper passed the time pumping out books, glorifying his past. Each book is entitled Chopper and then given a number like a movie sequel. Yeah, Chopper 2, Hits and Memories, Chopper 3, How to Shoot Friends and Influence People, and other subtitles like Pulp Fiction, No Tears for a Tough Guy, The Singing Defective, and The Sicilian Defense. In total, they sold about half a million copies, potentially making Chopper a wealthy man. That is, if he could ever get out of prison. Half a million copies? How much do you make per book? A few dollars? I mean, that's a, that's a decent chunk of change right there. In 1997, Chopper's allies had finally prevailed, and the Tasmanian government was willing to release Chopper on parole. What are you doing? Just overturn the act and then sentence him to life. He needs to be in prison forever. How is he lovable? This guy's just a douchebag. All the Australians are like, oh, not Chopper Reed! We love him down here, mate! But he's, he's, a, he's a crazy psycho. However, for a very curious reason, Chopper refused to go, declining to attend his parole hearing. It just happened that Alfonso Gangatiano, the leader of the Carlton crew, had returned to Melbourne and it had become an extremely powerful mob boss. Oh no, is he safe for imprisoned? Chopper had slandered him in his books. He worried that should he be released, the $30,000 Italian contract that he said on 60 Minutes was good for a gig or would finally get filled. But a few months later, on January the 16th, nineteen 19- 1998, Gangitano was murdered at his home, likely by his rivals in the Irish mob, although this remains unsolved. Chopper immediately scheduled a parole hearing, and a month later he was free. He was now 43 years old. That's intense. He was safer in prison. He moved in with Marianne on a farm near Richmond, Tasmania. Meanwhile, Chopper's paranoia didn't stop with Gangitano, and he felt certain that someone was going to clip him. And. Having been a massive celebrity, constantly hounded by the press, Chopper couldn't exactly keep a low profile. He fell into alcohol to soothe his nerves, drank an entire bottle of vodka on his first night out of prison, and kept himself on a steady diet of booze thereafter. He unwisely mixed this with Xanax, antidepressants, sleeping pills, and speed pills to pick himself up in the morning. <laughs> Just stop it with the uppers and downers! Just decide! <laughs> It was in this strung out state the chopper finally hit the interview circuit, appearing shit-faced on Australian TV. On McPhee's Live in 98, he said, you've had me stuck in your bloody green room drinking Melbourne bitter. I've done, I've just done six cans. Then you bring me on pissed as a parrot and ask me in-depth questions. I'm obviously drunk. I'm no use to anybody. It's not fair. He then proceeded to leer at the interviewer's cleavage. <laughs> Bro, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Just don't drink the booze. If I'm being interviewed you know what i don't do get drunk beforehand <laughs> it's not a good idea what are you doing if you're in the green room the booze isn't there because they're like oh you know i'll be good just um it would just provide some free booze no 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 the booze is there it's there for a reason they want to loosen you up make it a bit more interesting don't drink the booze it's not their fault that they put it there it's your fault for drinking it chopper You cock. In 1999, Chopper managed to calm down and level things out for a little bit. He completed Chopper 9, the final cut. His mother, Valerie, finally re-entered his life, pleased that he had married a respectable woman like Mary Ann. Soon after, Chopper had his first son, Charlie, with whom Chopper was reportedly very loving and affectionate. The following year, the biopic Chopper went into production, with Chopper himself suggesting Eric Banner for the role and in inviting Banner to Richmond uh, two days to prepare for it. When it was released in late 2000, the movie was a staggering success. I've never heard of it, though. Although now Australian royalty, Chopper spent most of his time floating around Richmond, and given that he had little or nothing to do with his days, he again fell into drink. In September 2001, he came home pissed as a rhino cake, argued with Mary Ann slapped her around and hogtied her over a chair. When Chopper sobered up, up, he apologized. But Mary Ann told him to get the hell out. (laughs) Yeah, no sh- you tied me to a chair, Chopper. The fuck, man! Not long after, he reconnected with Margaret Casser and moved in with her at a small house in Collingwood. In order to pay the bills, Chopper started on the speaking circuit, clearing six thousand dollars on his first night. God damn! So he went on a tour across Australia. He'd regale rowdy and laughing audiences with his tales of the criminal underworld and prison. Over the next five years, it's estimated the Chopper's speaking engagements earned him a million dollars. Wait, how's that maths add up? He's making six grand a night and he only makes a million dollars over five years. That's $200,000 a year. Um, what, did he only do like 30 talks? Uh, 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 I guess that could work out. He could do like, what, one every couple of weeks, basically? That doesn't seem like very much. I mean, it's a lot of money, but he could be talking more. After a show one night, a homeless man asked him for a cigarette. Instead, Chopper gave him a wad of cash, of two thousand eight hundred dollars. He also continued to write, had a number of TV interviews, and even starred in the comedy film Trojan Warrior, where he played the character Eric Banner. <laughs> then, in September 2002, while on a speaking tour in Casino, New South Wales, Chopper was signing autographs when he was approached by Sydney Collins. Wait, this the, the 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 biker guy he shot. The biker boss who had got chopper sent to prison for six years after being gut shot and chopper was not willing to get bygones be bygones quote you can't go dobbing people in you can't go giving people up for a minor shooting a minor shooting you shot him in the tummy, shot him in the guts and took it to hospital it was a petty offense a petty offense is like shoplifting you shot him (laughs) collins was in town collecting a gandette and he saw a Chopper advertisement and decided to go and hear him speak. After the show, Collins walked up to Chopper and asked him to sign a piece of memorabilia. Are you insane, Collins? Are you, you grasped on this guy, who's clearly dangerous, and he went to prison. Chopper refused to sign anything, but invited him backstage so they could have a talk. Collins was stupid enough to go. Collins, you are a dumb, dumb man. What are you up to, son? After a few minutes' discussion, Chopper suggested that they go to where Collins was staying and have a private drink. Again, Collins unwisely agreed. (laughs) To quote Chopper, I couldn't believe it. Mad. Idiot. Completely insane. Off his head on cocaine. I helped in his car, went back to his place, and bang, bang, bang. I shot him the last time with his gun, and I killed him this time with his gun. How stupid is this person? This is an idiot. Complete idiot. I was shooting to kill him. Last time, he just got it in the guts and had a trip to hospital. Very Christian last time. Not this time. Bang. According to Chopper, he buried Collins in a deep hole 50 yards from a football oval somewhere in Casino New South Wales. Collins' body has never been found. Collins' ute was discovered the next day near the town of Tabalam an hour's drive away. Where's a ute? I'm going to look that up. Collins' ute. Look up. A utility vehicle. Okay. Oh, this must be some Australian slang. An hour's drive away. Chopper was eventually considered a suspect in Collins' disappearance, but Chopper's entourage provided him with an alibi. It was only just before his death that Chopper admitted to killing him. When he asked what he felt, what it felt like to murder someone, Chopper said, I didn't feel anything at all. Nothing. No sense of fear, no sense of foreboding, no sense of power, no a sense of looking over your shoulder. Did anyone see it? That's about it. What do you expect me to say? What? <laughs> when asked why he killed Sidney Collins, Chopper roared because he was an absolute turd. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And he snitched on him. What did he expect? Guy's an absolute idiot going back to his hotel room. <laughs> what are you doing, Sydney? You're going to get murdered. It's Chopper f- Reed. With a whimper. In 2002, Chopper took up paintings, selling off his works at inflated prices due to his celebrity. It netted him quite a profit. Chopper described his painting style as... Picasso and his favorite subject was Mrs. Kelly, a female version of the 19th century bandit Ned Kelly, complete with humorously massive breasts. He painted Mrs. Kelly in various scenarios like boxing or holding a machine gun. I <laughs> see just bullshit paintings. I'm gonna start a painting career and just sell them. Who's that? Is it George Bush who also does paintings? Like when people, when you're famous, you could just be like, I'm gonna paint some shit or buy because I'm famous. It's wild. In January. Just fine, like, female Ned Kelly with huge tits. Like, what the f***? In January 2003, Chopper and Margaret Casser got married. On, December, on September the 25th, Chopper's second son, Roy, was born. Chopper's first son, Charlie, remained with his mother, Mary Ann Hodge, in Tasmania, and Chopper rarely saw him. Also in 2003, Chopper developed cirrhosis of the liver, which he blamed on contracting hep C from shared razor blades while in prison. But it was much more likely due to his vigorous drinking when he was on tour. <laughs> Wait, can you get hep C from drinking? No, you can't. Oh, I'm sorry, It's had cirrhosis of the liver, and he blamed it on hep C, not on his drinking. It's, you know what does cause cirrhosis of the liver? Drinking. In 2004, Chopper started his own wine label and decorated the bottles with copies of his own artwork. Bro. Did he do this after he got cirrhosis? But the wine didn't earn much and required Chopper to physically carry in crates of the stuff to Melbourne liquor stores. Chopper eventually argued with one of his business partners, punched the man and dissolved the company right there on the street. Chopper, (laughs) (laughs) I declare bankruptcy, I dissolve this. That was an office reference. I've been watching the American office, it's great. Chopper pivoted to a beer brand and the 6% alcohol Chopper Heavy was born the venture made an absolute killing in sales he also did a limited run of Chop the Board Game which sells for roughly $200 online today the game gives an electric shock to the losing players Chopper was also allegedly paid $200,000 to record his voice for mobile phone ringtones on August 28, 2005 Keith Reed Chopper's father died of a stroke in Launceston, Tasmania Chopper was holidaying on Hamilton Island off the coast of Queensland at the time and decided not to cut his vacation short Chopper later said I regret not going to see him I should have flown down to Tasmania to see him, but I didn't want to see him like that, because he was a big strong man, and I wanted to remember him as I remembered him. Not like that." Keith's ex-wife Valerie cremated his remains and didn't bother to have a funeral. Chopper kept some of his father's ashes. In the winter of 2005, Chopper started doing heroin while on tour. Much of Chopper's public persona was crafted around his hostility to drug dealers, robbing them without remorse because they peddled death to the vulnerable of society. And often on his speaking tours, Chopper would preach to the young about the evils of drugs. But it was all a facade. Eventually, Chopper overdosed and passed out in an alleyway. In response, Chopper decided to check into a rehab clinic north of Melbourne, but backed out. His habit continued, eviscerating his funds and leaving him $20,000 in debt. Meanwhile, Chopper had neglected to pay any tax on any money he'd been earning from the speaking tours. When the Australian Taxation Office demanded $100,000 from him, Chopper simply declared bankruptcy. I declare... <laughs> By 2008... Chopper's, dude, how can it go? Like, you were earning so much money. You made like a million dollars. You sold half a million books and you shot it all into your arm. Jesus. By 2008, Chopper's drinking had almost obliterated his liver. He required a transplant or else he would only have a few years left to live. But Chopper refused a transplant, saying that it should go to someone more deserving than a 53-year-old ex-con with a substance abuse problem. His health continued to decline. In 2011, Chopper temporarily left Margaret Kasser. Chopper's marriage to Margaret had struggled for a long time. Chopper kept many of his excesses on his speaking tour secret from her. As a result, Margaret thought Chopper was getting cheated out of money by his managers, because Chopper would lie to her about how much it earned on the road, when in fact it pissed a good deal of it away. Frequently, Chopper would come home drunk, and in response, Margaret would lock Chopper out of the house for the entire night. They argued loudly, and often, but it was Chopper who eventually left Margaret, not the other way around. Chopper just wasn't able to curb his bad habits and adapt to a more domestic lifestyle. He felt trapped, and now he was dying. So he elected to move from Melbourne to a house in Brisbane with his speaking tour bodyguard Mark Dixon, and die where he could pursue a lively existence unencumbered by a worrying wife until he perished. One evening, Chopper began bleeding such a voluminous amount of blood from his rectum that Dixon rushed him to hospital, the blood spattering Dixon's car. Chopper joked that it would increase the resale value. After Chopper got out of hospital, he returned to Margaret in Melbourne. In April 2012, he had another anal bleeding session, was rushed to hospital and diagnosed with liver cancer. Twenty-three tumours had sprouted on his liver, of which the surgeons managed to remove twenty. The doctors gave Chopper anywhere between six weeks and six months to live. Margaret did her best to look after him, putting him on a special diet, and although Chopper had cut out drinking, he couldn't resist scoring heroin, and then turned to speed whenever he needed an upper. On one occasion, Chopper was in a hospital bed in St. Vincent's Hospital, walked out the front door in his hospital gown, and went to Smith Street to find some drugs. Despite writing two more books, Chopper could no longer tour, and his paintings were no longer selling. Chopper was again struggling for money. Melbourne police even suspect Chopper for robbing a drug dealer at gunpoint in the man's flat in Collingwood. Despite everything, Chopper exceeded his doctor's expectations and was still alive and kicking in 2013, but by then, one of the tumors had all but consumed his liver. He didn't have long left and he wanted to lay some money aside for his wife Margaret and his second son Roy. As for Marianne and his first son Charlie, allegedly due to Margaret's jealousy, Chopper had only contacted them behind his wife's back, and apparently Chopper would also mollify Margaret's jealousy by claiming that Charlie wasn't even his legitimate son. But looking at the physical similarities, puts that to bed. Nevertheless, at the end of his life, Chopper was forced to cut Marianne and Charlie loose. He focused on getting some cash for Margaret and Roy. As such, He arranged a final tell-all interview with 60 Minutes Australia, where he admitted to the killings of Desmond Costello, the union-heavy, Reginald Isaacs, the char-killer, Sammy the Turk, literally just a man in the wrong place at the wrong time, and Sidney Collins, the biker boss. Aside from Sammy the Turk, there is some ambiguity as to whether Chopper actually did these murders, or if he just conjured up some plausible confessions to get a massive payout from 60 Minutes. Either way, Chopper would not be allowed around for much longer to be interrogated by the police, much less charged. In order to further lay aside money for Margaret and Roy, Chopper put on a final show at the Aniseum Theatre in Melbourne on September 23, 2013. The place sold out, and Chopper made a killing on merchandise. During the show, he regaled the audience with his usual stories, and at the end, his wife Margaret and his son Roy joined him on stage for a genuinely heartfelt moment. Chopper checked into the Royal Melbourne Hospital after the show. On October 8th, he was dying in hospital with Margaret and Roy at his side when he was visited by his mother Valerie. Having always thought her son was insane, and even twice having him institutionalized as a child, Valerie's goodbyes were stilted and cold. That same day, he was visited by his son, Charlie, who had flown up with his mother from Tasmania. Marianne wasn't able to visit Chopper, having been prevented by Margaret from doing so in the waiting room. The next day, on October the 9th, Chopper died, age 58. He was carted off to the morgue. His ten-year-old son, Roy, ran up to his body and pinched him on the arm. This was at Chopper's playful instruction to make sure that he was dead. He didn't want to wake up in the morgue and frighten anyone. On the subject of wasting away from liver cancer, Tropper said, quote, I've never ever worried about death. Never entered my mind. Death? That's what kept me alive, I suppose. They say you sleep, and you sleep, and you sleep, and then you fall into a coma. And sometimes in the coma you die. So it sounds pretty painless. I hope that's how I go. It's better than dying with a bullet in the back of the brain. I've dodged a few of those. Dismembered appendices. Number one. Despite his fame stretching across several decades and the vast amount of time he was in prison, Chopper Reed was never adequately diagnosed by psychologists. In fact, in childhood he was diagnosed with mild autism in order to explain his difficulty in identifying with people and forming lasting friendships, along with trying to explain his violent rages whenever he would get frustrated in personal interactions. The diagnosis has persisted in the media to this modern day, but it's probably not that accurate. Instead, Chopper Reed fits many of the criteria for both narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. His self-aggrandizing lies, his lifelong lack of remorse, and his substance abuse all point in that direction. But whether Chopper incurred these disorders by nature, like some genetic neurological problem that afflicts some psychopaths, or nurture his rather rough and unpleasant childhood at the hands of his parents, is a matter of speculation. I just feel like it's usually a combination of both. It's almost always a combination of both. And I'd say in this one, it's… Uh, I would say it's mostly nature and then the nurture thrown on top of it. And if Chopper was a sociopath or a psychopath, it's quite clear that he would be classified as low-functioning. It's difficult to imagine a reality where Chopper could have lived a normal life with a normal job and stayed out of prison. Yeah, agreed. Number 2. In addition to his autobiographical works, Tropper wrote two children's books, Hookie the Cripple uh, and The Adventures of Rumsey Rumsfeld. When Hookie the Cripple came out in 2002, numerous community groups campaigned to ban it from Australian schools for its violence. Hookie, the book's protagonist, is a hunchback in 16th century Italy who is abused by a grumpy old butcher. When Hookie turns 21 years old, he stabs the butcher to death. That is not appropriate for a children's book. What the? F- Chopper was absolutely delighted that people wanted to ban it, since he correctly assumed that the headline would increase book sales. Number 3. In 2006, Chopper released a hip-hop album titled Interview with a Madman via Rotten Records, featuring contributions by numerous Australian and American rappers, while Chopper stumbles stumbles manfully through various rhymes and verses. The album even includes a skit involving the aforementioned hooky, The Cripple. Two of the tracks were also given music videos. What the f- I don't- I, I don't like this. This- I don't like that people like this guy. This guy's a piece of criminal who murdered people and can spin a good story. Why do we like people like this? He's just a douchebag. Number 4. On February 17, 2023, Chopper's son Charlie landed in a Tasmanian court charged with dangerous driving and several firearms and drug offenses. Two days earlier, police alleged Charlie was driving recklessly just in the north of Hobart, so they laid out spike traps and discovered the car abandoned in St. Mark's Anglican Church a few minutes later. In the car, police claim they found a large quantity of meth, a caliber rifle, a 303 bolt bolt-action rifle, and a search of Charlie's home uncovered an unlawful Glock replica. Charlie is also facing charges from December of 2022 for stealing $7,000 worth of cigarettes from a petrol station. F***ing How many cigarettes is that? This is a lot of cigarettes! Either that or cigarettes are really expensive in Australia, wielding a harpoon gun in public and unlawful possession of a Kawasaki motorcycle. How do you have unlawful possession of a? What's it illegal about a Kawasaki motorcycle? Number five, final one. In Australia, Chopper Reed is a larger-than-life icon. He will always have die-hard fans who admire his big, bad, and mad persona, especially if they've absorbed Chopper's embellishments from his books and interviews. Yeah, I think this is it. People read these books, which he wrote and embellished and made himself look good, and the reality tells a really different story of a guy who's just kind of a piece of... So, no, I don't like him. Maybe if I read his books, I'll be like, yeah, he's an outlaw hero. But they're his books, written by him, which is not a neutral perspective. But there's also a constituency of pearl clutches in Australia who don't know much about him and mistakenly believe he was Australia's most dangerous man, an impression that Chopper himself was only too happy to encourage. But for most Australians, Chopper will more broadly represent a modern echo of the convict past and the contempt for authority on which this country was founded. And most of all, whether he deserves this title or not, he will always be considered the epitome of the, quote, cheeky Aussie larrikin, or the mysterious rogue with a heart of gold. Some of Chopper's victims may beg to differ. or beg to differ. And so, uh, yeah, that's where we end today's long episode. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, David, for writing it. Thank you, Jen, for editing it. Um, yeah, if you're listening to this, please do leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, why not like and subscribe? And I'll see you next time.